Hello and welcome to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I'm delighted to be handing the reins over. Oh my gosh, how exciting to our wonderful, fabulous Emma. Emma Rosa Went. Take it over, babe. Hello, it's me, Emma Went, doing this thing. Sort of directing, facilitating, sharing thoughts about Hamlet. Here we are. I will do some chat about the play before we rock on. And I also want to allow some time for Isabel, brilliant dramaturg, Isabel Smith-Bernstein, who is here with us, um, to do a little bit of chat as well, to just kind of put some stuff into the room before we go in and do this thing. But first of all, uh, let's do the go around and say who we are and who we are. Let's do pronouns. Let's be profesh about it. And let's say who we're reading, what we're doing here. And because everybody is going to have a different zoom layout on their screen, let's, uh, hand it off to somebody when we're done. Um, so I'm Emma Rosa Wendt. I'm so honored and thrilled to be facilitating this discussion. Thank you, Ariana. I would like to hand it off to Colin because he's next to me. Hi guys, I'm Colin. Um, my pronouns are he, him, his, and I will be playing Polonius here um, on this lovely podcast. Um, and I'm excited to be here and uh, Chat and Shakespeare is my favorite part kind of being in the room like this. So uh, what an interesting kind of format and I'm new to the podcast and I'm excited to uh, be a part of it. Um, I'll pass it off to Joe. Hello, hail, well met. Uh, I'm Joe McGurl. Uh, my pronouns are they, them, or he, him. I am delighted to be here, excited to get in the mix of this. I will be reading uh, for the ghost of Hamlet's father and as the player king. So lots of fun, everyone. Can't wait to get into this. Thanks, great. Uh, I'll give it to Zoe because she's next for me. Hello, friends. I'm Zoe Goslin, pronouns are she, her. Um, I'm playing Ophelia and I think Osric possibly, yes. Double O. Yeah, I'm very excited. We'll see what happens. That's it. Good to see you. <laughs> I will pass it to Olivia. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Olivia. My pronouns are she, her, and I am gonna be playing slash reading for Laertes, and I'm excited. It's gonna be fun. Let me pass it off to Andrea. Hello, uh, I'm Andrea Lopez, and uh, she, her. I'm super psyched to be reading a score of different characters. So if you don't know really the character, uh, it's gonna probably be me just like filling in. And I'll pass it to Julia. Hi, my name is Julia Larson. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I will be reading Hamlet. Oh, should I pass it off to somebody or can we be just be done? <laughs> Good end question, podcast. Hamlet. <laughs> and end, end podcast. Um, I will pass it off to Patrick. Hi, I'm Patrick Harvey. My pronouns are he, him, and I will be reading Claudius. And I'm going to pass it off to Isabel. I'm Isabel Smith-Bernstein, uh, she, her. I'm, I'm playing Dramaturg, and I will pass it off to Harrison. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Harrison. I'm using he, him pronouns. Um, and I'm here to hang out uh, and assist Emma and just be a, a person in the room with you all. I'm happy to be here. I'm going to pass it off to Elves. 
Hello, I am Else Went. I'm going to be reading for Horatio. Uh, I use she and they pronouns. And um, I'm going to pass it off to Tim. Hey guys, I'm Tim. Um, he, him. Uh, and I'll be reading for Marcellus, uh, Voltamund, Lucianus, and Ambassador. And I'm really excited to get started on this. I'll pass it off to Erin and Will. Hi, I'm Erin. She, her. I will be playing Guildenstern and Gravedigger number two. And now, last certainly least i present to you will carry um thank you hi i'm will ormsby carry and i will be reading for the parts of rosencrantz and gravedigger number one my pronouns are he him his thank you all there we go now am i going out of my mind or should we have finn we should have finn shouldn't we i don't think he's here so i'm gonna text him and if someone else could also text him while i talk that'd be fabulous uh hey um, i'm uh i'm finn kilgore and uh <laughs> i'm not I'm a million here feet tall and hey i'm, not I'm here. Uh, finn kilgore and uh my voice drops like 10 octaves when i'm <laughs> that happy. was almost that it was that was very all, good that actually. was good that was good some um, people think that my irish accent is better than my native american <laughs> accent native all right new york accent <laughs> american Farewell, sweet witches. Now that we've all spiritually conjured Finn Kilgore into this space, uh, which we've done a good job at, and hopefully soon we'll see the man himself. Hey, what a fantastic, amazing company of human beings. Let's talk a tiny bit about what we're doing. First of all, just to set the table, I know that many of you have already done some of these podcasts with Ariana, but many of us haven't. And for me as a director or thinker, director-shaped person, in preparation for this, it's just been really exciting to think, to have an opportunity to think about what even is table work. You know what I mean? Of like table work process as, a, as an event in and of itself is a really exciting thing for me. And a think tank space without production is something that directors almost never get to have. So this is a really juicy and exciting thing. And so in thinking about what even is table work, a couple of things have come into my brain that are just kind of process-based. So I just wanted to share kind of what my offerings are, which are that obviously to clarify and enrich the story is to me the primary purpose of table work. And that, as I started to think about it, kind of fell into a couple of different categories, you know, which is one, one of which is, on a basic level as an actor, because you're all terrific and brilliant actors who I've worked with. So I know that you know how to get the most out of your table work time. Obviously on the one hand, what is the information that I need in order to be in the scene is part of what we have eyes out for, right? Like what are the questions I have to ask in order to do my acting? Who is this? You know, who am I talking to? What is happening? How do I, how do I ground myself in the moment? Is, the, is one kind of thing that we have eyes out for. But there is also another kind of question, which is what is the kind of question that I ask in order to make the room alert to that question rather than to answer it to be in the scene? There are bigger things that we might stumble across and have antennas out for that are like, I put this on the table so that we can continue being alive to it as we move through the play as a company. And that really made me, made me aware of and embrace the fact that table work for me is where we, is one of the most exciting times because it's informed by all of the voices and brains and bodies in the room. And it's about 
discovering piece by piece a common interpretation. You know what I mean? It's about asking and answering what is the story of ourselves that we're telling in the play. And so even though we don't have a production at the end of this, I would, I offer that we can still go in search of what is our, what is this version of this play? And what does this specific text mean to us now at this moment? And even without trying, basically, we will come upon a common interpretation by the end of these conversations because we will have cobbled it together, together. So, together, together. So that's some of the thoughts about process that I had, but it's all gonna be discovery and we're gonna build the house as we go. But, so before I hand it off to Isabel, I just wanna share a couple of things that have been in my own brain about this play. And actually, you know what, just because there might be some overlap and Isabel will probably inform where I kind of end up here before we kick off. Why don't I hand it to you now, Madam Dramaturg, and please uh, give us some of the riches of your stuff before we kind of catapult in. Great, thank you. Um, so I, the, I, I'm treating this as, as though it's a, you know, it's a, re a rehearsal. So I have first day of rehearsal notes, um, which uh, I wrote myself, but I'm, I'm largely going to read. And I'm going to start there. I also just want to put out into, into the space that I have a speech impediment. I have a stutter, just like our president now. So I'm basically very cool. Okay. So uh, in writing uh, a first day of rehearsal notes. They're always extremely challenging and there's a lot of pressure as a dramaturg to kind of say something new and exciting, but I don't think there's a bigger challenge than Hamlet. Because what can I say about Hamlet that's illuminating, relevant and slightly humorous that you all haven't heard 8,000 times before? Because what isn't Hamlet about. Uh, like Shakespeare himself, Hamlet is a cipher, endlessly imprintable and, and capable of carrying uh, so many stories. So I'm starting with a very important character and a very important scene, which is Ophelia's mad scene. And one of my favorite things in Shakespeare is how he uses plants. Um, and the plants that Ophelia hands out are indicative of Shakespeare's genius because each has a hyper-specific meaning and, and, and use that Shakespeare and his audiences would have been aware of. These plants all come together to make the garden which rots in Denmark. Rosemary is for remembrance, a plant used in weddings and funerals in Elizabethan England. Remember me, says the ghost to Hamlet, and Hamlet responds, remember thee, I thou poor ghost, whilst memory holds a seat in this distracted globe. This suggests in the context of it being 1600 in the Globe Theater, and that Hamlet's act of remembrance will become the focus of the theater event, and revenge is a form of remembrance. Hamlet's call to remember calls him back to life. Hamlet leaves lurking in the shadows of, of the court to take action against Claudius. He casts aside his inky cloak and instead develops an antic disposition and wild and worrying words. Fennel is for false flattery. That association grew from fennel's use as an appetite suppressant by fasters. It's a plant that appears to give sustenance, but it does not. 
Many things in the court of Denmark are not as they seem. In a play about a search for authenticity, it takes investigation to find the truth. Often that manifests as straight up spying. This is a play filled with spying. It highlights the, the distinction between public versus private, exterior and interior. Pansies are for thoughts. They were also used to predict the future of your love life. Four veins meant hope, seven constancy in love, eight fickleness, nine a change of heart, and 11 a disappointment in love and early death. Hamlet is simultaneously a play that is obsessed with the past and with the future. Hamlet lives in the past in order to have a future, while Gertrude tries to focus on her future, but Hamlet is a constant a memory of the past. Ophelia returns Hamlet's remembrances so that both of them may have a chance to continue. The future is also reflected in the sly mentions to the monarchy. It is deeply embedded in the text, but Denmark was a constitutional monarchy. This means that the monarch was elected for life by the citizens. Claudius's ability to usurp Prince Hamlet from the throne came from popular opinion rather than birthright or marriage. Daisies are symbols of purity and innocence, a flower that, that Ophelia does not hand out with the others because daisies no longer have a place in Denmark. She keeps it perhaps as a hopeful gesture that Denmark could improve. Daisies are a reminder that the hope of heaven exists. This is a world where everyone is terrified of going to hell. Columbine is a symbol of forsaken love. So many bonds go awry in the world of Hamlet. Hamlet is already a very interior play. The, the attention directed inward as people in the Renaissance uh, developed English humanism. Hamlet's relationships with his love, his mother, his father, his uncle, his best friends, all go haywire as a result of the ghost's request, remember me. As the relationships break down in Hamlet, many characters are left isolated, which leads them to set in, in motion many actions, which eventually is going to kill them. Violets are for melancholy and early death because they are one of the flowers Persephone gathered when she was kidnapped by Hades. Every character who dies within Hamlet has met an early death. Violets come to represent the danger in the world of rotting Denmark. Rue is documented in every herbal book from Shakespeare's period and before as an herb that causes abortion. From the Bateman herbal, uh, Rue it, uh, putteth a dead child out of the womb and, and cleanseth the mother. This is the plant th that Ophelia notably gives herself, which would immediately signal to Elizabethan audiences that she needed Rue because she was pregnant by Hamlet. This relates to Hamlet telling Ophelia to get to a nunnery and their apparent love for each other, which seems to go far beyond the beginnings of courtship. Rue is also the herb of bitterness and the herb of repentance. In this way, Rue is, in, is indicative of, of Hamlet as a whole because it's also rooted in the past. Its job is to fix past wrongs and provide a glimmer of hope for the future. Hamlet does end on a hopeful note. In Hamlet's final words, he is finally fully in the present, demanding that Horatio tell his story, sounding just like his late father, proving that past is prologue. Unbelievably genius and helpful. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I can. <laughs> yeah, so many interesting, so many interesting details there. So before we move into one one, 
I'm glad that I let you go first because there's so many lovely things there that will help me move. What isn't Hamlet about? <laughs> is a great question. I mean, we do have to, I want to, I mean, we have to acknowledge the stature that this play has in the canon. And I, I am happy that you began with that because the thing of like the, there is an increased urgency around not reinventing, but inhabiting as if you don't already know anything about when a text is so um, well-loved and, and often read. So there were lots of interesting things there and now my head is really grappling to incorporate them. That's wonderful. Some things that I was thinking about before we go in, I mean, really, the only thing I really want to say is that, yes, it's very important and grand. Yes, we've all seen it a thousand times. Also, this play slaps. <laughs> like, that's my, my considered scholarly opinion. <laughs> my professional opinion upon um, preparing to go into this work is this play also just slaps as a piece of action, like as a piece of dramatic stagecraft fucking amazing. And I'm excited to let that happen. Like, let that speak for itself. Do you know what I mean? But just in terms of things that I'm on the watch for, because what isn't Hamlet about, there are certain things that I'm going in especially curious about. And I mean, to approach, hello Finn, I'm so happy you're here, to approach Hamlet in 2021 in this snowy <laughs> this snowy February that most of us are ensconced in over here. I mean, confinement, mortality, madness, acceptance, maybe. It's a play that things, particular things I want to put on the table are that it's a play that invites our interrogation of what is real versus what is pretend or put on. And it's also a play that invites our interrogation about what is what is madness and what is sanity, <laughs> what is not madness. And I'm interested in how those questions leech outward from the central figure, because those aren't just questions about Hamlet <laughs> as a person. You know what I mean? Those are questions about the whole world. And... I also want to just name, even though this is an audio um, experience for ourselves and for the audience, for ourselves as much as, you know, for process, this is a very young company for Hamlet. I mean, this is looking at all of our faces. We know who we are. This is a very kind of late 20s and early 30s place that we're living in. And that's not insignificant. And it's actually kind of important to say, I think, that I don't think that it's I think it is interesting and potentially helpful, but it is it is where we are. Having a youthful company for Hamlet is no bad thing, I think, because it is a play about one young person's response, incredibly visceral response to their universe. And it's just where we are. And so as I ask these things of, how do how do what, the questions of what we're aware of seep outward from Hamlet into the rest of the company? We're in a particular place to refract those things. Do you know what I mean? But it's different than if we had um, if we had a more multi generational company. I think that there is a certain kind of alacrity that comes when you know when you do a Shakespeare play like this and everybody's and everybody's quite young. But it's an interesting thing to name in terms of how we're walking into the text and. Here's a really obvious thing that I was thinking about a bunch before beginning this work. 
there's sort of a really obvious paradox at the center of this play that I had never noticed before sort of stopping to really think about it. And it's very simple. And it is this. It is a play that I think most of us, one of the central things that we understand Hamlet to be about is the incredibly urgent and eternal question, what happens to you when you die? Most of us think about this play in, the, in those terms. I mean, that's why there are certain speeches that are more famous than others. And the big one is what happens to you when you die? That is a very interesting kind of moral and imaginative centerpiece for a play that starts with an encounter with the supernatural. It's very weird for the play to so intensely and constantly orbit the question of what happens to you when you die when we've met someone who's dead and that's the reason that any of this is happening. <laughs> and so I don't know whether or not that points to a sort of a tension between maybe a more Christian understanding of the universe versus something else beginning to creep in. I don't know, but um, it is certainly a tension that I find quite interesting. And uh, it's just been in my brain a lot. It's just like, okay, that's an interesting thing. It's a play about death. And also it starts with a ghost. <laughs> so without any further ado, really, I think let's do the thing. We're going to find our way through. Uh, and see what happens. So one, one. Um, and just, just before we rock on, Isabel, is there anything that you want to um, say to the company about the text? Anything that they should know about what this text is and how to interact with it before we go? Sure, yeah. Um, I, I, I did this cut for another theater company that I'm stealing from myself. Uh, it is largely based on um, the, well, it's 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 mostly first folio, but if there's if there's a little bit of second quarto in here, just just a touch, um, and a little bit of first. But if there's like a really significant moment where it's it's really up to the actor which word speaks to you the most or tells the story that you want to tell. So that is in the footnotes, which I hope transferred into the into into the script. You'll see a little note, and then at the bottom, I offer you know sullied, sallied. Etc. Right. Um, right. Other than that, there's there's really nothing crazy about it. Perfect. Should we toss it over to Finn to say hi? <laughs> Sorry to be late. Hi, I'm Finn. Not at all, fam. Finn, who are you reading in in one one? I'm gonna be reading uh, Francisco. I think is is the only. Yeah, project. that's right. Okay. Word. Yeah. Okay. Francisco. Great. Everybody in one one on deck and know who they are. Rock on. Okay. Who's there? On we go. Why don't I do a tiny bit of, I'll do a tiny bit of act one, scene one but otherwise. All right, everyone. Act one, scene one. Enter Bernardo and Francisco, two sentinels. Who's there? They. Answer me. Stand and unfold yourself. Long live the king. Bernardo. He. You come most carefully upon your hour. It is now struck 12. Get thee to bed, Francisco. For this relief, much thanks. It is bitter cold. I'm sick at heart. You had quiet guard? Not a mouse stirring. Well, good night. If you do meet Horatio and Marcellus, the rivals of my watch, bid them make haste. I think I hear them. Stand ho! Who is there? Friends, to this ground. And liegemen to the Dane. Give you good night. Oh, farewell, honest soldier. Who hath relieved you? 
Bernardo, half my place. Give you good night. Hola, Bernardo. Say what, is Horatio there? A piece of him. Welcome, Horatio. Welcome, good Marcellus. What, has this thing appeared again tonight? And let's just take a tiny pause there for one sec uh, before we get into Ghost O'Clock. Okay, here we are. There are, there are already weird facts and relationships happening. And I just want to draw our attention to some of them before, before we go too, too far. There's a thing that is almost unnoticeable that happens, but, and Finn, you handled this perfectly by accenting answer me, because there's a weird thing of who is coming and who is going at the beginning of this play. You know what I mean? Because we don't know any of these fools. It's dark and they can't see each other, but someone has been on guard and someone is coming. And the person who is, Bernardo, answer me, stand and unfold yourself. Bernardo is coming in or has been there? Coming in. Yeah, coming in. in, coming in. Right, which is why it's weird for the guy that's coming in to say who's there. <laughs> <laughs> You should know who's there, my homie. (laughs) So there's also like a slightly, it just is interesting because it goes by quite quickly, but it is already a little bit wrong-footed. Let's imagine what we're seeing on stage. A guy shivering on a battlement. A guy walks in. The guy walking in says, who's there? Odd. So not to make too much of a meal out of that, I feel like if Shakespeare had wanted to put it the right way, he would have done (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So there's already like a slight, a slight jumpiness of mood to me, right? And we're going to find out what the jumpiness of mood is about in another two seconds, but it's weirdly embedded in the relationship from the very beginning, right? There was another thing. Tis bitter cold and I'm sick at heart. Obviously a famous line, a moody line, but... There's a lot of mood being painted on by these two guards, right? It's like, okay, it's cold, but you're sick at heart. We've known you for three lines. Interesting information. (laughs) Okay. So Francisco is, Francisco was already there. Bernardo is coming in. Bernardo says, if you do meet Horatio and Marcellus, the rivals of my watch, bid them make haste. So Francisco has showed up. But Bernardo was also waiting for Horatio and Marcellus. Two seconds later, here they come. And here comes Horatio, which who we, we've only known for a couple of lines, so I won't stop to talk about him yet, but soon I will. <laughs> so let me have Bernardo hath my place give you good night. Let me have from Marcellus, holla Bernardo. Hola, Bernardo. So what, is Horatio there? A piece of him. Welcome, Horatio. Welcome, good Marcellus. What, has this thing appeared again tonight? I have seen nothing. Horatio says tis but our fantasy, and will not let belief take hold of him, touching this dreaded sight twice seen of us. Therefore I have entreated him along with us to watch the minute of this night, that, if again this apparition come, he may approve our eyes and speak to it. Tash, tash, will not appear. And let us once again assail your ears that are so fortified against our story, what we two nights have, what we have two nights seen. Well, sit we down, and let us hear Bernardo speak of this. Last night of all, when yon same star that's westward from the pole had made his course to illume that part of heaven, where now it burns, Marcellus and myself, the bell then beating one. Peace, break thee off. Look where it comes. The same figure like the king that's dead. Thou art a scholar. Speak to it, Horatio. 
what art thou that usurps this time of night, together with that fair and warlike form in which the majesty of fairy of Denmark did sometimes march? By heaven, I charge thee, speak. It is offended. See, it stalks away. Stay, speak, speak, I charge thee, speak. Okay, Tiny paused really fast before we move on. Already new batch of information. Hey, Horatio, a scholar. There are so many questions that we all will have and continue to have and will always have forever about Horatio, a scholar. But it is so significant that Horatio walks into this play not believing in this ghost. And then two seconds later is like, oh, a ghost. (laughs) You know, I mean... First of all, they don't say, we haven't used the word ghost yet. This thing, this thing, we've seen it twice. It's such an interesting and like weirdly modern feeling dramatic choice on Shakespeare's part that this isn't the first time the ghost appears. Like it's start of this very suspenseful story at rise. We already had a ghost problem. You know what I mean? That's an interesting, that's an interesting choice. So just wanted to put our eyes on the fact that Horatio right away it, we, we are told he doesn't believe Horatio says touch touch will not appear and then also I really enjoy the fact that Bernardo gets this chance to be really theatrical about the storytelling you know of like this is <laughs> on a dark and stormy night just like this there was a ghost and then Shakespeare is like no instead of that the ghost is coming back <laughs> you know what I mean there's something interesting about the fact that I, I think it's a fun um theatrical opportunity, right, Andrea, for Bernardo to be like, I'm so psyched to tell this story again. And then before you can even get into it, the ghost is back. Um, And I also just wanted, so information we have obviously two times already. This is number three. We're gonna run into many times over the course of this. The timeline of Hamlet is absolutely fucked on the scene level and also on the play level. So in the macro and the micro, the timeline makes no sense. The ways in which it makes no sense are interesting. Here, it's midnight. Let's just keep that in our brains for a little bit. (laughs) At this moment, it's midnight. Okay, so here here comes it. We still haven't used the word ghost, but it's a thing. It's an it. Look where it comes again in the same figure, like the king that's dead. Can we have it just from Marcellus, thou art a scholar, speak to it, Horatio? Thou art a scholar, speak to it, Horatio. What art thou that usurps this time of night? together with that fair and warlike form in which the majesty of buried Denmark did sometimes march. By heaven, I charge thee, speak. It is offended. See, it stalks away. Say, speak, speak, I charge thee, speak. It is gone and will not answer. How now, Horatio? You tremble and look pale. Is not this something more than fantasy? What think you on it? Before my God, I might not disbelieve without sensible and true avouch of mine own eyes. Is it not like the king? as thou art to thyself. But in the gross and scope of mine opinion, this bodes some strange eruption to our state. Good now, sit down and tell me, he who that knows, why the same strict and most observant watch so nightly toils the subject of this land. Who is it that can inform me? That can I. At least the whisper goes so. Our last king, whose image even but now appeared to us, was, as you know, by Fortinbras of Norway dared to the combat in which our valiant Hamlet did slay this Fortinbras who by a sealed compact well ratified by law and heraldry did forfeit with his life all those, his lands, which he stood seized of to be the conqueror. Now, 
Sir, young Fortinbras of unimproved metal, hot and full half, in the skirts of Norway, here and there shirked up a list of lawless resolutes to cover, recover of us those foresaid lands, so by his father lost. And this, I take it, is the main motive of our preparations, the source of this, our watch. Okay, let's pause there for a second before we get ghost o'clock. So many things are interesting about this. Looking at act one before coming into today, because we're going to run into something very like this with Claudius in the next scene. The how, how hard Shakespeare front loads the plot, the political plot, is really, really interesting. And also, just to make things fun, it's about two kings who have the same names as their sons. And <laughs> it's, you know, but... The, the let's unravel what we can make of the plot here. But even before we do that, I just want to flag how interesting it is and maybe get folks, you know, else, or if you have any thoughts about this, Isabel, too, how interesting it is for Horatio as a character that like Marcellus, a soldier who works here, like a soldier who lives here for, Den you know, in Denmark, is asking to have explained to him the reason why guard is sort of amplifying and like why militarizing is, is increasing and like, what are we going to all this trouble for? Who can explain it? And Horatio pipes up with that can I? And there's interesting textual, not confusion, but ambiguity about whether Horatio is even from here. So it's always strikes me interesting that a soldier of this place is like, what's actually going on? And Horatio is like, I know. And then unspools the backstory. I think it's actually also really interesting because um, you see the who is who is that can inform me is a shared line with that, can I? Yeah. And I hadn't considered this before, but given like how much, how much backstory, how much, um, is being dropped here in terms of the political and the logical landscape of history. It yeah. makes so much sense to me for Horatio to jump in and say, okay, well, these are things I know immediately mm -hmm. after having encountered something that he doesn't. That's nice. I do, I do definitely find like the confusion of uh, referring to Denmark as this our state. Um, yeah. And then later it's contradicted, but, but up to this point, he just seems like a Dane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who, you know, they just said a minute ago, who are you friends to this ground, right? Friends to this ground and liegemen to the Dane. Mm -hmm. That's all we know, I suppose. And then here, yeah, this hour, eruption to this hour state. So what is exactly the info that you give us here? In sort of plain speaking terms, the plot that Horatio lays down is? Daddy Ham was challenged by Daddy Fortinbras over, over some, some land, some land war. Fortinbras got killed, and uh, Daddy Ham took a bunch of lands, and now baby Fortinbras is coming back and being like, yo, I need this shit. It was my dad's. Give it back. Right. And now that Daddy Ham is dead, baby Fort yes. thinks, thinks that might be easier. Right. We can presume. Yeah. We, I mean, right. Like, Daddy Ham is dead, so we're coming for the land. Hashtag Daddy Ham. Um, did we miss anything there, Isabel, do you think, plot-wise? Uh, plot wise, no, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I do think it's it's notable. Um, I try and keep my historical tidbits to uh, 
you know, like what's relevant <laughs> uh, and, and sort of what's actable and what's actually informative. And yeah. I do think that um, it helps kind of set up the fear of the ghost that there was a belief about ghosts in this period that only a scholar could talk to a ghost and not get possessed by it because scholars knew Latin and ghosts were terrified of Latin for whatever reason. So that's why they're making, that's why Horatio has been brought out here. That's why they're making Horatio do this. And Horatio, who we kind of think like might be German and a Protestant, and it seems like everyone here is Catholic. Right. So that's kind of, um, it really sets up Horatio as an outsider. That's super helpful. That's super helpful. And you know, what's interesting to me is that I mean, because Horatio walks in and is established as not believing in ghosts, but then two seconds later takes it on board and has this like remarkable porousness to sort of admit it into his worldview immediately of sort of like, okay, well, I'm, I'm seeing it. I'm believing it. It's interesting to me that he calls on his God in that particular way of before my God, you know what I mean? Like, and then later he does a by heaven as well. You know, I mean, there's a couple of different gods and heavens in this scene invoked by Horatio which is interesting to me as a scholar, but also before my God, you know, but Pro the Protestant versus Catholic thing is really interesting to have eyes on. And so, wait, so if they, if they would be like, Hey, scholar, human buffer here and talk to this ghost in Latin, but then obviously he speaks English. I mean, obviously like he doesn't, Shakespeare does sometimes put Latin in the play. He doesn't do that here, but then also theoretically they'd all be speaking Danish. So, but it's interesting. I mean, that's, that's a, it's neither here nor there really, but I do, I do think that that's helpful to know. I really liked else. That was, an, that's a really interesting thought of, we really quickly moved from the supernatural into the very groundedly political. So I like that you, that you made a choice to sort of shake into like, okay, <laughs> I'm spooked, but I can talk about politics. Here we go. Okay, that's great. But l lower comes again. Let's roll on. If you could, Horatio, from But Soft Behold at the bottom of the page. But Soft Behold, low, where it comes again. I'll cross it, though it blast me. Stay, illusion. If thou hast any sound or use of voice, speak to me. If there be any good thing to be done that may to thee do ease and grace to me, speak to me. If thou art privy to thy country's fate, which happily foreknowing may avoid, oh, speak. Stay and speak. Stop it, Marcellus. Shall I strike it? Do if it will not do stand. Do it. Tis here. Tis here. Tis gone. I was about to speak when the cock crew. And then it started like a guilty thing upon a fearful summons. But look, the morn in russet mantle clad walks o'er the dew of yon high eastward hill. Break we our watch up, and by my advice, let us impart what we have seen tonight unto young Hamlet, for upon my life, this spirit, dumb to us, will speak to him. Let's do it, I pray, and this morning know where we shall find him most convenient. Awesome. Okay, so before we roll on to one, two, there's a lot of weird, there's a couple little linguistic things here I just want to touch. The way the ghost moves is really interesting, and we're going to see it later in the act, but tis here, tis here, tis gone is evocative of such a weird kind of, it's here, I don't see it, it's over there, I don't see it. Now it's gone. And that's going to happen later too, the idea of how the ghost moves. And also it just strikes me that 
powerful linguistic motifs come in threes a lot in this play. And tis here, tis here, tis gone is an interesting little kind of beginning of that to me. Also something I just wanna flag, Horatio linguistically, that is so lovely on the top of, on the top of uh, whatever this page is, uh, after stay illusion, this little section, if thou hast any sound or use of voice, speak to me. If there be any good thing to be done that may do ease to thee and grace to me, speak to me. This little, this structure of the full line, speak to me, the two full lines, speak to me. If thou art privy to that, the two full lines, oh, speak. That feels like, I mean, obviously what Shakespeare's doing there is writing in the pause where you wait for it to say something after each of the speak to me's. But again, the triptych of really, really passionate ask, speak, silence. Let's try something else again, really passionate ask, silence, you know? And so I don't know, that just like, that's a powerful directive from the text, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think you can ignore it. I don't think it lets you. Yeah. Um, especially because the sentence gets longer. Well, not longer each time, but mm. it becomes harder to roll on. Yeah. And the speak to me, speak to me, and then oh, speak being the final one feels gnarly. <laughs> so shall I strike it is kind of funny, isn't it, Marcellus? Like, <laughs> I mean, Horatio standing there sort of eloquently trying to commune with this horrifying spirit. And Marcellus is like, should I hit it? <laughs> like, with a big stick. With what, bro? <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah, like, it's a ghost as well. What am I going to do to it? Like, <laughs> what are you going to do? It's a halberd? Like what? But, but the, we're going to, I mean, it invites, a, it invites a, a thought about how corporeal this thing is and what it even is and how it moves, right? Should I hit it? Do if it will not stand, tis here, tis here, tis gone it's going to slip out of your grasp every time. What is it made of? How does it move? Who knows? Okay. It was about to speak when the cock crew, a hilarious line, but um, I just want to remind us that it was midnight five seconds ago. Well, they're very far North. They're very far North. They are very far North. <laughs> That's true. Up really early that far north the chickens rise really early oh my god they are committed to their jobs but uh it's an interesting slipperiness of time night passes in this weirdly dreamlike way in this play whenever Shakespeare wants it to and yet it's sort of always night it's a weird one it's a weird one it's a dark cold play Denmark man um okay and then Horatio gets this really beautiful language about the russet mantle clad and the dew of yon high eastward hill and whatever so yeah it's straight up sunrise and then Horatio has this really powerful piece of intuition which is upon my life this spirit dumb to us will speak to him so I don't know else do you have any thoughts about that I know I know that I know because we were talking about it earlier that you um noticed it and that it's interesting that right away at the beginning of the play not only is Horatio like our conduit to Hamlet in this in this moment Horatio is the thing that's taking us to Hamlet but Horatio also knows that the ghost will speak to Hamlet talk about that well I just think that it's really interesting that Horatio um in the presence of something illogical in the presence of something beyond uh his imagining immediately rationalizes uh, a logical process of things from it he, instead of it being an explosion of his worldview 
he sort of redefines his worldview around it and thinks, okay, well, if there's this ghost of King Hamlet, then, and he's not going to speak to me, then the logical conclusion is that he's here to speak to his son, that a stronger connection between the two is going to actually mean something, that there has to be a purpose uh, for this apparition. That's a really strong place for us to begin this play. If there is, if there is something, as Hamlet is later going to say, you know, greater than heaven and earth <laughs> than is dreamt of in our philosophy. If there, if there is such a thing, it has to have a purpose here. That's a really good thing for us to keep eyes on, especially through you, I think. An ultimate purpose. Okay. I had a small, like, kind of non sequitur thought that just occurred to me that I th thought might be yeah something of interest in discussion. With what we were saying earlier about uh, Horatio sort of immediately wanting, like being like, let's talk about the politics of this. It, it occurred to me also that like, that the ghost is wearing armor and perhaps this is the first time they've seen him wear armor since he fought Fortinbras for the first time. And so it's kind of like, why is he like, why, why, okay, first of all, we're seeing a ghost. Second of all, he's dressed for battle. Like what battle is coming? Like the last time we saw him, you know, he was in, you know, fucking Yeezys and, you know, he was lounging, you know, like wearing absolute loungewear. Yeah, uh, he was absolutely nude running around the palace. No, but I, <laughs> I just mean like, it's, it's it, it seems to be like in that we're starting the play with this sort of like political context, it makes me wonder yeah. sort of, that must be an ominous thing to see, you know, like if you saw the ghost of your father and he was wearing, you know, fucking camo and yeah. you know, carrying a gun, that means something different to you than if you saw him, you know, wearing mm -hmm. a t-shirt and jeans. It, it feels that, that I hadn't noticed that before. Yeah. And because they, you know, talk about it a little bit later, I thought, yeah. I was like, oh, wow, that was new for me. No, that's terrific. Uh, I think my my impulse had always my I guess my brain filling the gap in there had always been perhaps he was buried in it. But also, I'm not sure there's any textual evidence that suggests that. So, but I mean either way, either way though, Shakespeare could have written him looking like anything. So, the fact that in in like poetic terms that the that the apparition is wearing his armor is super significant mood-wise. Yeah, what battle is coming is a great question. Not for... to belabor anything or to draw us back, but actually looking at the text uh, where they talk about what he's wearing, where Horatio says, uh, what I thought that usurps this time of night together with that fair and warlike, warlike form. Um, it's so interesting because I hadn't actually put together the fact that he's referring to the apparition as with the form of dead Hamlet, not as the form of dead Hamlet. So even at that point, he's describing a memory of an image of the king and not connecting it with the thing that he's seeing. Like it's like, it's an assumed quality. Hmm. I, I also think everyone's being uh, like super cautious here. So there was an idea that Protestants held that spirits could sort of like uh, take bodies and sort of zombify them and then sort of march around and bring people to hell or whatever. Um, so with uh, the form of, I think also speaks to Horatio's intense skepticism about uh, uh, what's happening. Um, yeah. Because, and, and then no one actually calls the thing a ghost until Hamlet does when he yeah. comes face to face with it. So. And there's also that wonderful word illusion, which is fantastic. I mean, I just immediately thought of Job in Arrested Development, but you know, it's, it's like <laughs> a similar, you know, it's like a similar thing of like, what is, 
I yeah. know what I'm seeing and it can't be real. And therefore yeah. it is an illusion, which is. Yeah. Yeah. This thing, it illusion with the form. Yeah. It's very interesting. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. So, and like speaking a little bit just into the whole like Horatio kind of having more knowledge than these mm -hmm. actual guards. I think it's funny that they keep looking to him for confirmation that it is the king. They're like, it looks like him, right? That's what the king looks like. It's kind of like Horatio has yeah. interacted with the king more than they ever have. Yes, there's a lot of weird status information that is imparted just in, in, in those interactions in the scene of just like, I mean, we're going to keep eyes on as we move who Horatio has met you know, who knows Horatio? Has he, how is, has he been here before? Since when, you know, like Horatio's level of familiarity and ease of movement throughout the court is really interesting by contrast to say Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who we're going to meet soon, who seem to be constantly ushered through rooms by people, by other people's permission. Horatio just sort of wafts through and yeah, he's just, Super, super interesting. His level of knowledge, but also sort of outsidership. Let's skate onward into one, two and meet uh, the rest of the people that live here. I want to remind, uh, I want to remind us before we hand it over to Patrick here, that thing that Isabel said at the beginning, which I found super helpful of Claudius wouldn't have been able to use Sir to step into Old Hamlet's place without uh without an election is that so the fact that this is a this is an an efficient and you know if this is a public leader chosen by the people not just a guy who was like i guess i'll sit in this chair then okay act one scene two enter claudius king of denmark gertrude the queen the council as polonius and his son laertes hamlet with others among them voltamon and cornelius Though yet of Hamlet, our dear brother's death, the memory be green, and that it us befitted to bear our hearts in grief and our whole kingdom to be contracted in one brow of woe. Yet so far hath discretion fought with nature that we with wisest sorrow think on him together with remembrance of ourselves. Therefore our sometime sister, now our queen, the imperial jointress to this warlike state, have we as twere with the defeated joy, with an auspicious and a dropping eye, with mirth in funeral and with dirge in marriage, in equal scale weighing delight and dole, taken to wife. Nor have we here in barred your better wisdoms which have freely gone with this affair along, for all our thanks. Now follows that you know, young Fortinbras holding a weak supposal of our worth, or thinking by our late dear brother's death, our state to be disjoint and out of frame, co-leagued with the, this dream of his advantage. He hath not failed to pester us with message importing the surrender of those lands lost by his father, with all bonds of law to our most valiant brother. So much for him. Now for ourself and for this time of meeting, Thus much the business is. We've here writ to Norway, uncle of young Fortinbras, who impotent and bedrid scarcely hears of this his nephew's purpose, to suppress his further gate herein, in that the levies, the lists, and full proportions are all made out of his subject, 
and we here dispatch you, good Cornelius, and you, Voltamand, for bearers of this greeting to old Norway. Farewell, and let your haste commend your duty. In that and all things, things, we will, we show, will our show our duty. We doubt it nothing. Heartily farewell. Okay, tiny pause. Thank you, Cornelius and Voltamond, for attempting that most impossible of things on Zoom, the shared line. <laughs> but you did do it. Hello, Claudius. Hello. Everyone's favorite stepdad. Hello. All right, let's talk about this, bitch. <laughs> Something I am really interested in that we haven't gotten to yet that we are going to get to is the order in which he chooses to do business in this scene, considering who we would be looking at on stage. The order in which he chooses to address people is interesting to me. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and we see that. Yeah, we'll, we'll see that in a second, the way he talks to, La- to Laertes before his... Uh, before his, Hamlet. Uh, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of interesting stuff in terms of how Claudius runs his railroad from the very beginning. The opportunity of this speech to contain uh, political juice in terms of what Claudius wishes to be received as by the people in this room. And, you know, of course, by extension, the audience, what kind of leader he's painting himself as. And also, I want to talk a little bit about all of these, all of these really pointed, weird antitheses in this speech of obviously, you know, we get, we get uh, a defeated joy, you know, mirth and funeral and dirge and marriage. It struck me that sort of, you know, the greatest one of all really is our sometimes sister, now our queen, you know, like, it's the beginning that leads into this whole run of it was kind of a bummer but it's actually great for a while it was a bummer and in a way it was fine and you know like the way that he turns the situation into a piece of skilled but also quite weird political rhetoric I don't know it's like everything is an opportunity for charisma for Claudius I think is yeah yeah I think of I I for some reason going into this you know he he begins he, he has this just long ass preamble. Yeah. Where, you know, it's, it's, it's like the, it's like the preamble of the declaration of independence of like, whereas therefore, whereas though yet, yet so far, therefore, and okay. <laughs> yeah. Do you maybe want to bury the lead that you married your sister-in-law perhaps? <laughs> the aristocrats. Listen, but, but yeah, that there, I think the way that his language works right the way that because here's the here's the interesting thing about this scene are you addressing i mean this is the interesting thing about a court basically and i mean i know we talk about this a lot in history plays but the constant tension and the oneness of are you talking to your country or your family and in and in in reality it's almost always the same thing you know what i mean which is why it's quite weird to play, you know, which is why he's a weird figure and kings are weird figures because are you talking to your country or your family? And it's weird to make a political address out of your marriage. <laughs> and, you know, again, the thing we're going to talk about in a second of who are you talking to? Who are you ignoring and not talking to? How are you trying to spin it? The spin is so evident in this speech, don't you think? Mm-hmm. A defeated joy. Nobody made you, bro. A defeated joy. Okay. Okay. So my question to you then as an actor is what level of comfort 
but also even enjoyment in his own political dexterousness do you think Claudius is displaying here? You know what I mean? Like how far do we want to go with how comfortable he is in this seat making this address? How much pleasure does he take in the spin is a choice to be made, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I kind of, I kind of, I kind of wonder like how much would he rely on someone like Polonius and his counselors? I get the sense a lot and how much of his rule is based on sort of matters of state and foreign affairs and how much of it does he, and how much is it just, he's glad to, he, you know, he's glad to have usurped his brother's seat and taken his wife without too, without, a, without causing a civil war. And now it's just, you know, basking in that sort of, in that, in that warm, fuzzy glow. Well, the thing is, Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, who we're about to meet, is very pissed off. And it strikes me that part of why that is happening is that there is such a warm, fuzzy glow happening. It should feel like a funeral. It feels more like a marriage. And so, I don't know, sitting that side by side with something that struck me hearing you read it just now was how confident he feels or he wants to play like he feels about the political situation. Because we've already been told about this whole situation by Horatio and you're here like, oh, he's pestering me, but it's a dream. He'll never win. Yes, I he seems, I mean, he seems to be a defter politician than we've seen in this country in the last four years in that he's, he, he's, able to, <laughs> yes. he's able to come off as though he's speaking from the heart. So I, 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 I get, I, I always get the sense that like, you know, I, I saw a production of this where it was like the king and queen sitting in front of a television camera while this is being in, beamed into homes all across, de- all across the country. And then once right. that's over, then we deal with, Foreign yeah. affairs with Fortinbras, with with Voltman and Cornelius, and and then then it becomes a more private mm. affair. But like, there's a switch between mm. there's a switch between the public address and then the mm. um, the keeping keeping the house in order. Where would you place that switch? Um, I would I would place it at at one point in it's towards the for end all the our movie. thanks probably right. The, well, uh, I think, well, there is for all our Ooh, things. no, maybe not. I, but I think that's also kind of like a press correspondence report of like now, for, okay, so so now we're gonna we're gonna bring you up to speed with everything that's already done. <laughs> so here's what's going on with young Fortinbras. Um, and then here's, you know, here's our ally Norway, da 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 da. Uh, mm. I mean, honestly, the Cornelius Voltemann thing, mm-hmm. bearing them off could be in the public eye as well. And then it's, you know, we doubt that it. That feels public it. to me. I'm heartily farewell. Thank you and God bless you and God, and God bless the United States. Sending the ambassadors and may God protect. Yeah. Sending the ambassadors to Norway feels like a public gesture to me. And then we get into business at home and then, then we get into business at home at home. So yeah, now I, we will, we will move on, but I just wanted to, because this is such a powerful introduction to this character. Right. And I want to begin the brainstorm with you, Patrick, from this place of let's pretend we don't know the play Hamlet and let's pretend we don't know what Hamlet is about to learn because Hamlet also doesn't know it yet at this point. And think about what kind of king Claudius actually seems like textually. Like, is he, is he good at this? 
Weirdly, I think this is the only time we see him being a king. Pretty much. I mean, he deals with ambassadors and nonsense a couple of times, you know, in little in little spurts. Yeah. And I mean, of course, like this is a production question in a certain sense. If we were staging it, you know, I mean, people make all kinds of different. There is a there is a there is a Denmark where this throne room is really populated all the time with like people who are watching you talk. <laughs> and there is a world, there's a production where this castle is really empty and drafty and people are constantly walking around like weird lost people and there's like no one fucking here. So it's it's interesting, but how, how much of a good time is he having before everything starts going horribly wrong for him is sort of my question. Oh, I think a very good time. Very, very good time. Okay. And we see that, we see that the way Hamlet, Hamlet describes how much of a drinker he is in the next scene. I mean, he's having a, he's having a good time. And I think basically we need you to be having a really good time because we need to make Hamlet's life as difficult as possible. That's a good, that's a good, that's a good space to start from. I, I also just think he has a, I think he has shown having a sort of flashy trick for the rhetorical, not just with all of those kind of antitheses, but with the little, the little sort of punctuation, the little, like so much for him, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a certain level of showmanship and humor almost in his public persona that I think is accessible. Yeah. Okay, let's send Cornelius and Voltamont on their way and move on. We doubt it nothing. We doubt it nothing. Heartily farewell. And now, Laertes, what's the news with you? You told us of some suit. What is it, Laertes? The head is not more native to the heart, the hand more instrumental to the mouth than is the throne of Denmark to thy father. What wouldst thou have, Laertes? My gracious lord, your leave and favor to return to France. From whence, though willingly I came to Denmark to show my duty in your coronation, yet now I must confess that duty done, my thoughts and wishes bend again toward France and bow them to your gracious leave and pardon. Have you your father's leave? What says Polonius? He hath, my lord, wrung from me my slow leave by laboursome petition, and at last upon his will I sealed my hard consent. I do beseech you, give him leave to go. Take thy fair hour, Laertes, time be thine, and thy best graces spend it at thy will. But now my cousin Hamlet, and my son! Little more than kin and less than kind. How is it that the clouds still hang on you? Not so, my lord, I am too much of the sun. Good Hamlet, cast thy knighted color off, and let thine eye look like a friend on Denmark. Do not forever with thy veiled lids seek for thy noble father in the dust. Thou knowest his common, all that lives must die, passing through nature to eternity. Ay, madam, it is common. If it be, why seems it so particular with thee? Seems, madam. Nay, it is, I know not, seems. Tis not alone my inky cloak, good mother, nor customary suits of solemn black, nor windy suspiration of forced breath, no, nor the fruitful river in the eye, nor the dejected behavior of the visage, together with all forms, moods, shapes of grief that can denote me truly. These indeed seem, for they are actions that a man might play, but I have that within which, passes, which passes show, these but the trappings and the suits of woe. Tis sweet and commendable in your nature, Hamlet, to give these mourning duties to your father. But you must know, your father lost a father. That father lost, lost his. And the survivor bound in filial obligation 
for some term to do obsequious sorrow, but to persever in obstinate condolement is a course of impious stubbornness. It's unmanly grief. It shows a will most incorrect to heaven, a heart unfortified, a mind impatient, and understanding simple and unschooled. For what we know must be, and is as common as any the most vulgar thing to sense, why should we, in our peevish opposition, take it to heart? Oh, fie. It's a fault to heaven. Fault against the dead, a fault to nature, to reason most absurd, whose common theme is death of fathers. And who still hath cried from the first course till he that died today, this must be so. We pray you, throw to earth this unprevailing woe and think of us as of a father. For let the world take note, you are the most immediate to our throne. And with no less nobility of love than that which dearest father bears his son, do I impart to you. For your intent in going back to school in Wittenberg, it is most retrograde to our desire and we beseech you, bend you to remain here in the cheer and comfort of our eye, our chiefest courtier, cousin, and our son. Okay, let's pause for a second. Now, that was a lot, but I wanted to get us deeper into the meat of what's happening here so we can talk about some of the shifts. Hi, Hamlet. What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? Hi, what's Hamlet. Up? We got Laertes in the building. Polonius in the building. Gertrude in the building. Okay, everyone that lives here, what a, what a time we are having. Okay, there is so much to unpack here, but... This order of business thing for Claudius, let's get back to it. Okay, we've addressed the nation. We're having an excellent time with our wife, even though it was a bummer, but really it's fine. And we feel pretty confident about the political situation. There go the ambassadors. It's kind of precarious, but actually it's fine. Laertes, kid of my advisor, who was old Hamlet, my brother's advisor, you know, sort of chief courtier, Laertes, a kid I don't know that well, sort of know. Yeah. If I may jump in on that. You asked Patrick in the last pause we took about like, how how does Claudius feel like this moment is going? Yeah. I feel like Laertes feels (laughs) like this moment is going fine, but very strangely. Claudius having to ask me three times what's up with me, it feels very like- yes. Like, and again, it's okay. It's okay. Like, but like, it very much feels like myself and my dad, I won't totally speak for you, dad, but like, (laughs) we've just been at a family funeral of not our fit. Like, it it suddenly is Mm -hmm. a space in which like, like we just, we're just here to support. So like the fact that Claudius is like, hey, you, what's, it, it feels very like, fine fine totally yeah. fine so yeah i'd love to leave the country i'd love to leave the country at your soonest convenience but it's fine um i mean kind of weird to be called on in this moment is what you're saying and i'm so glad that you brought us to the point of and now laertes what's the news with you full line question mark you told us of some suit what is laertes again stuff 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 your father's really important to me what do you need laertes what can i do for you man where are you going i feel like there's like a look at polonius there's like a look at ham there's like a so 
I'd like to go back to France as soon as I can. Thanks. Yeah, it's very helpful to check in with how do the other people in the room feel this is going. <laughs> so the thing is, it's helpful for you to feed that back, Olivia, that what you feel in your Laertes body in this moment is I don't have the kind, you don't genuinely have the kind of relationship with Claudius to make it normal and natural for him to ask you what's going on three times in a row, right? Like this is an odd putting on the spot moment. You are not actually as buddy buddy as this, right? No, I don't, I don't think so. I, he's obviously my king at this mm-hmm. time. So like, I don't, of course I would never suggest that I have any issues. Right. No. Right. And I mean, the word that you use is duty, which really, which struck me, you know, of I must confess my, like that duty done, my thoughts and wishes bend again toward France. Like I've done, I've done my job as a citizen, but I'd like to go back to my life. So here you go. Okay. So here we meet Polonius. Hi, homie. Yeah. Um, hi, Colin. You know what, something that is funny to me that I do sort of want to put into the space is that since I haven't had a chance to talk to you about this, the fact that the Shakespeare projects that Colin and I have recently done in like in the recent past is worked on Northumberland and Henry the fourth and Hastings in Richard the third. And this is, you're doing a string of courtiers exactly like this. (laughs) So uh, my apologies for typecasting you. (laughs) I I love playing that. Yeah. The, the kind of, you know, between uh, kind of self-serving, but also communal serving to a degree. Right. Uh, you know, and, and just kind of adding to that conversation, I do find that to be an odd, I think I was expecting him to kind of chat with me uh, about the leave, because the leave is odd. I mean, going to another country, especially after this, being somebody who's as influential, probably as close to the king as, pot- I mean, there's this potential of yeah. treason, right? Of just like, what are you doing? Why are you leaving? And who are you talking to when you do go? Right. And so I, I get that. I, I think I validate the concern, but I find it to be more political in his response of, I've vetted it, it's cool. Mm-hmm. And I'll, you know, and kind of ease the concern as much as like, it's over. There's nothing for you to even think about. But I still find it interesting because I bring it up later and I'm to a degree a little bit concerned about what Yes, about uh, why Laertes wants to bounce. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I find that, but I don't politically don't want Claudius to know I have any concern at all whatsoever. Right. Right. Yes. So, you know, he's, he's, I like, I I only brought up, you know, the previous roles that we've worked on just to put into the space that Polonius, I feel like is often played in a, in a more bumbly way. And something about having the ghost of Hastings and Northumberland in this sort of space between us is interesting to me because I do think it's more interesting if he airs a little bit more on the side of the line of I'm taking care of mine, but I'm not stupid. You know, I'm just, I'm just taking care of mine. Yeah, I do. I agree. And I don't think he's off, you know, as, and we'll talk about it more, but you know, he's, he's wrong, but he's not super off, you know, like, yeah. and I think he's, oh, he's kind of played that up to this point, you know, and I think his children are something that he, he cares very much about. And I think that mm. juxtaposition is really nice, especially in Hamlet's life, you know? So, yeah. so yeah, lot lots that we will chat about later. <laughs> he's a, yeah, he's a, that's fun. 
he's a trusted political advisor to two kings like he's not he's not an idiot which is a playing of it that i've never really understood like he i don't i don't think two kings would continue to, to sort of trust him with secrets if, if if he was just some kind of bumbling idiot and then ophelia is so affected by his death so your notion of you know he yeah. caring about family uh, it has to be there it's in the text yeah yeah i agree absolutely so here's this little family ophelia not in the scene not in the room productions can choose to put her there of course but textually not in the scene so we're gonna meet the rest of that family in a second but first of all what what up ham just sad (laughs) babe i was reading i was reading um i (laughs) was it's sad out here i i'm reading a book um by Michael Pennington called Hamlet, a user's guide. And uh, there was a footnote in it that I was looking at earlier today that I wanted to give to you, Julia, which was just a footnote that was like, I don't think an incredibly like iconically famous character has ever made a more like bummed out entrance into a play. <laughs> Basically <laughs> was the note was like, it, it, it's such a, it's such a, for such an iconic character, it's such a weirdly sort of disaffected entrance. It's such a sideways very, entrance, you know? Yeah, it's very dog. Like a little more than kid and less than Clyde. Like, <laughs> so sad. <laughs> yeah, pretty much like that. Like, no, um, I'm too do much you... in the sun. I got to stay over here and keep my skin nice and pale. Like, okay, dude. <laughs> straight up you're a straight up goth what do you he's a scene kid do you do you interpret claudia speaking to laertes before you do you feel insulted by that i mean no more insulted than i have by the rest of everything that he's done he starts out by acknowledging that my mother was once his sister so that's kind of like (laughs) like we didn't start off it's all down from here Um, yeah but I, I think with what we've sort of been establishing that this is like a really, it feels like a very desperate attempt. Like we have, a, like, it feels like, wow, everybody's here in the same place. I want to establish, it feels very much like he's establishing his dominance over this space. And like him talking to Laertes, just like, it, it, it sort of adds to that of like trying to connect mm-hmm. with these people. I mean, and then the fact that in the following speech, so he basically is like, sure, yeah, you can go if your dad thinks it's okay. Yeah, go ahead, you go to France. And then in the next speech, he says, but you, you should stay here with me, is kind of really the kicker. Yes. For me, I think. Those are first thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's is great. That it, like, that's a good That's a good place to start. I think it, it feels like his, his conversation with Laertes feels like an attempt at forming a relationship uh, whereas you know we already have a relationship so I'm just sort of it doesn't it, it <laughs> yeah, feels like uncle. a personal <laughs> yeah it, it feels like a personal insult just as much as the rest of everything that he's done feels like a personal insult you know like I, I don't expect him to speak to me first because I honestly don't want him to speak to me as one of his subjects he's not my king I, I it, it does feel it feels like like I was yes. like I was saying and like we've all said this is we're all here for this funeral and now we're here for this wedding and the fact that he has chosen this point to be like okay now let me hold court is is an insult in itself and like you know if if he had just sort of let everyone go their ways and then sort of settled into being king 
that would have been one thing. <clears throat> but the fact that he's like, yeah. okay, here's this funeral. Like, let's all be here and mourn. But also I'm going to make it about me by turning it into a wedding. And also I'm going to make it about me by like rubbing my coronation in the face of everyone and making sure that everyone knows that it's me who's king and not the old Hamlet and not the young Hamlet. Yes. Yes. I think that's, I think that's huge. And when we, I'm going to move us into Claudius's speech in a second, because there were some things that stuck out to me, but in your first little chunk, also like not to, not to skate past her. Hello, Gertrude. Hey, what's up? What, what's up, girl? What you doing? (laughs) So, I mean, obviously that, that's a question that will haunt us for all of time. Yeah. But in this moment, in this moment, She's quiet for a long, you know, Claudius does so much addressing and so much speaking for the royal seat. And she's, she's quiet until Claudius talks to him. She's quiet until Hamlet speaks. Yeah. She doesn't speak until Hamlet speaks. It's just the code of Gertrude, right? She, I get the sense that she is incredibly attentive to the emotional swings of her son. I have a feeling that Hamlet was a very difficult child and that he required a lot of attention and validation on like a daily basis. (laughs) And that she's sort of, there's almost like, to me, there's almost like a weariness to this first speech of hers. Like, yes, can we get out of the goth phase, honey? Can you put that back in your closet and put on your nice clothes? And if you could eat, that would be great. You know, like there's just (laughs) something like I've been through this with you before. Like there is something so kind of, I don't know, both weary and also like so deeply maternal and like patient and that that patience that like only mothers can have with their children you know I don't I don't I just find her immediately mom is like the first word that sort of she just is mom (laughs) she totally she totally is yeah go ahead I also wanted to bring up like correct me if I'm wrong but like she's also like she brings up Hamlet senior like to Hamlet here and to me that like goes right along with kind of what Ariane was saying about their their relationship is like he obviously idealizes his father and she's just sort of like okay like I know that you idealize him but like maybe this is like maybe this is a good thing like you can move forward from this like leave seek for thy noble father in the dust is such a crazy line seek for thy noble father in the dust it seems so coarse but also like yeah, it's really interesting. I, I it is. Oh, no, go I, ahead. Babe. Yeah, I think it's um, sort of important to kind of note that Hamlet Sr. is noted as a warrior, like, over and over and over and over again. And so what this would have, like, practically meant was that he was never home. And I think that's important for his popularity as a king. And that's important for how he how it affected his family, because who would have been home was Claudius the whole time that Hamlet Sr. was gone. Um, so, you know, no matter what we think of the relationship between Gertrude and Claudius, they probably had more of a relationship than Hamlet Sr. and Gertrude, at least after a certain point. That's such helpful uh, context. Yeah, that is Absolutely. so, so helpful. And so, and especially because of this thing of, you know, the word that you use, Julia, of idolize is so it. And obviously we get so hard into that later when, with, you know, in the big Gertrude scene, you know, when, when we get to it later with the picture of your dad, you know, I mean, like it, it's, it's, 
he's like an icon. He's like a saint to you. Right. And so I don't know the level of his anger. It's just like, and I love Ariana that you said that she feels tired. And then the fact that all you say, you know, tis common, all that lives must die passing through nature to eternity. And the way that Hamlet immediately begins this pattern that I think he, you know, he continues through a lot of the play of just throwing whatever word you use back in, you know, and just the fact that whatever she, whatever she throws in, he chucks right back at her. Yeah. And so we will, we will roll on now, but I just wanted to, if I am stable, internet stable, I wanted to just obviously note for Julia, you know, this thing of, it's one of your first actual speeches and already we get the language for they are actions that a man might play, but I have that which in which passes show already we're doing a commentary into what is actable and what is acted and what is authentic. And this is such a question that obsesses him and the play. It's like from page one, that's not how she was using the word seems like, you know, like this is just where you, this is just where you go. And it's a very interesting thing to put in our brains so early. Right. Okay. Um, now we will roll on, but Claudius, we have to check in about this speech really fast because there is so much going on here. Hey, buddy, I know it's been really hard hey. since your dad left. And I know your mom and I have been spending a lot of time together. So I just want you to know that, you know, your mom loves you and I don't feel indifferent to you. And um, I just think it's really important that we have a better relationship moving forward. You're not my dad. <laughs> buddy, I know I'm not your dad. Trust me. I don't want to be your dad. You know, this is just where we are. I think that's the subtext in this bit. Great improv. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Really good. Uh, Patrick and I are just going to do like a quick five minute long improv where uh, we unpack our relationship. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, yeah, that I, I, was we, we learn a bit of I think I'm so sorry I'm cutting you off. Um, we learn a bit no, about no. Like, Claudius's his parenting style, which is be a man. Suck, <sighs> yeah. suck it up. Yeah, the term I mean, unmanly grief is just such a icky, icky sentiment. It is, it is icky. And not only that, there's a slow sort of shift in this speech, I think, where you start by saying to sweet and commendable. And then quite quickly, we get to unmanly grief. And then you're just yelling at him. Like, then you're just insulting him. You know, I mean, like, we were really trying to rein it in a second ago. And now we get all the way to it's a fault against heaven, a fault against the dead, a fault against nature. I mean, Jesus Christ, it gets really heavy, really fast. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, it's it's Claudia strikes me as someone who is like always going through a struggle in his mind of of logic versus emotion. And even like in his first speech, he says like it, you know, it was the what, what was it like? Our nature took took a, took a better part of our discretion. Mm. And I think he just doesn't understand. Like I, it, I, I think there's a part of him that's just like, what's wrong with you? Get over it. Such a fun thing to bring up because I think that's one of the things that has always drawn me to Hamlet, and one of the things that I love so much about Hamlet is that there is this sense that like can become so like weirdly gendered of like if you if you, you know it's the thing where like if you get emotional then somehow like your opinion is not valid sure. that I like am so drawn to because Hamlet is so emotive and emotional and vocal ab about how he feels and like comments on like is my emotional reaction to this like impeding my intellectual judgment and like 
the fact that see like we see their relationship and that that's like the first thing we learn about them is that that like yeah. that's his critique is like your emotional response is invalid here it's such like it's such a sort of like traditionally like weirdly gendered thing yes yeah and there's a way in which I mean and also you you did very kind of and now I'm doing dad acting Patrick which I really like of like Claudius moving into this place of like let me try and whether or not he's yelling and then moves into this place of like, hey, listen, we've all lost a dad. And it's just so awful, even before we know what we're going to learn, uh, you know, about you. Like, even in this moment, it is so grating to be like, how dare you? And then something that really hit my ear really hard is um, the way that sort of the way that royal we creeps in. That place of it's really just fucked when we get to we pray you throw to earth this unprevailing woe. And it really hit my ear when you when you got to and think of us as of a father of like even in the same breath, it's entwined. He can't say it without being like, remember, I'm the king now and I'm your dad. You know, it's like the kingness of it is like he won't let go and then also sort of buries this thing about i'm not going to let you go back to college i want you to stay which like just as a claudius question i have two i just have two questions i want to plant in your mind one if you are this really consummate politician and you're enjoying this moment which i think is absolutely correct is there something about hamlet that pushes your like how much of this speech is out of your control and then how do you rest the control back you know what I mean? And also, why do you need why do you need him to stay? Hmm. You know what I mean? Just for yeah. you to know. There's also there's also a weird question where I think it's I think it's I'm, I'm trying to wonder where where the bit about uh, let the world take note. You are the most immediate to our throne and with no less nobility of love than that which dearest father bears his son to impart to you and calling him his chiefest courtier. I mean, it should be obvious that Hamlet has no interest in being in staying in court. Or in yes. being a politician, being in power, and I mean, well, could it could it be something as simple as like Gertrude said, "Can we keep Hamlet? Can we keep Hamlet around?" Go ahead, Julia. What do you think about that? Well, I was just gonna say, I I don't know because he does say, "You are the most immediate to our throne." Like bringing up that I was the heir before and I'm still the heir now is a weird thing to say, not just because of like you I'm you married my mom, but like given what Isabel told us about like the election <laughs> yes and yeah. like that whole stuff like it it does set an undertone of like well if you do want to be king someday like then you better embrace me as a father you know like I, I you can still be my you can still be my heir just like you were your father's heir like you can still be king it feels like a weird threat <laughs> it does, does. Isabel oh, yeah Sorry, uh, Hamlet does have a no. line later that's like, he came between the election and my hopes, which shows that Hamlet actively ran for king against Claudius. He lost, which is crazy, considering, you know. That our, is crazy. You know, maybe because I wasn't here. <laughs> it's like, maybe it's kind of it. Yeah. It's like, you are the most immediate to our throne, blah, blah, blah. In going back to Wittenberg, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're going to do the same thing again. Like, might as well keep it in the family in the most horrible Claudius way way oof keep it in keep it in the family was his campaign slogan um uh was the platform he ran on okay let's move and I have more thoughts about that but let's roll on 
Gertrude, can we have it from Let Not Thy Mother Lose Her Prayers? Absolutely. I also just wanted to say, I, I totally forgot about this, but there's this line from Ken Branagh's first movie, A Midwinter's Tale. They're like, be careful that you don't say, good Hamlet, cast off thy colored nighty," <laughs> which is just like <laughs> stuck in my mind now forevermore. That cast like Hamlet would be taking off that colored nighty. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> out of the world. Let not thy mother lose her prayers, Hamlet. I pray thee stay with us. Go not to Wittenberg. I shall in all my best obey you, madam. Why, tis a loving and a fair reply. Me is ourself in Denmark. Madam, come. This gentle and unforced accord of Hamlet sits smiling to my heart, in grace whereof no jocund health that Denmark drinks today, but the great cannon to the clouds shall tell, and the king's rouse, the heavens shall brew it again, respeaking earthly thunder. Come away. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew, or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Oh, God, God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fie on it. Ah, fie, tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Things rank and gross in nature possess it merely. That it should come to this, but two months debt, nay, not so much, not two. So excellent a king that was to this Hyperion to a satyr, so loving to my mother that he might not beteem the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. Heaven and earth, must I remember why she would hang on him as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on. And yet within a month, let me not think on frailty. Thy name is woman. A little month or ere these shoes were old with which she followed my poor father's body like Niobe, all tears. Why she, even she, oh God, a beast that wants discourse of reason would have mourned longer. Harried with my uncle, my father's brother, but no more like my father than I to Hercules. Within a month, ere yet the salt of most unrighteous tears had left the flushing in her gallet eyes, she married, oh, most wicked speed, to post with such dexterity to incestuous sheets. It is not, nor it cannot come to good. Break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. Okay, a tiny pause before we get the lads in. Claudius and Gertrude seal it up everybody leaves and Hamlet's like, hi, the play's called Hamlet. It's about me. Um, <laughs> and here, and here we get, and here we get the speech. So it always just really, it's a, it's an incredibly effective theatrical moment. You know, I mean, anytime you've seen it, anytime I've seen it, the moment where everybody else leaves and this sort of scene kid at the fringe of the action is like, no, really, the play is about me <laughs> and I'm flipping out. <laughs> so all I really want to draw attention to here, because there is so much, obviously, is speaking of the fluidity, the flexibility of timeline in the play, the subjectivity of timeline, the way that a month transforms in this speech is really important to tell us about Hamlet's kind of um, emotional state. You know, I mean, first we get, but two months dead. 
And then in the same line, nay, not so much not to. So loving to my mother. And also just as a little thing here, when we get the text, why she would hang on him as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on. I all, now I'm thinking about this info that, that Isabel dropped in about, you know, they might not, Hamlet might not have seen them together very much actually during his life. You know what I mean? Like this thing of what is this memory of old Hamlet that we have, you know, and this image that Hamlet has right away of his parents so loving together. And that image is so important to him, but it's like, it's just interesting now that I have that in my brain, you know, of like, how real is that, you know, but it's real to him and it's here in the moment. And then we get, and yet within a month. So we've already got not two months, you know, within a month. And then within a month again, and so it cannot come to good. And then a little month. So two months, less than two, a month, a little month the winnowing down in the space of just this one monologue, the concentration of his anger is so demonstrated by that. Can uh, I talk about, about time just for a second? I'm thinking, I'm trying to find a, a moment to, to drop this in. So um, everything that you're saying about Hamlet's perception of time is like its own category because there's also a very real timeline of the play that took me a really long time to figure out so um, <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm not even totally confident I'm like you know I'm, I'm not correct I'm not you know I'm not always right but to me it seems that old Hamlet, old Hamlet is murdered in November um, and then Claudius and Gertrude get married around Christmas which, which is a month later. And then this play is happening after the Christmas holidays, which of course go into January because yeah. there's a line that is cut from this version that's basically, it's just been Christmas time and ghosts couldn't surface or walk the earth around Christmas. So it does seem like it has been two months. The two months have been covered and, and now the ghost is finally able to get out and share his story. And he's been just like waiting in, in purgatory mm -hmm. or wherever. Um, but now that Christmas is finally over, you can, he can s sort of find Hamlet. And then uh, it, the rest of the play, I believe, I'll talk about this more as we get there, mm -hmm. goes through about March. Winter, deep, deep winter. It sure feels like winter. Yeah, that is, that is really helpful. That is, and the, the, the sense of the ghost being pent up until this moment is really helpful. I feel like, because the play, the play starts with such a like, it, it has such a like starting gun feel to it of like out the gate, the ghost is so, is communicating so strongly. You know what I mean? That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so that was lovely, beautiful, we have, the, it's just like so much hot concentration of emotion as soon as we get Hamlet alone. And then, okay, lads, come in. Let's do this ghost business and take us to the end of this. Uh, from you, Horatio. Hail to your lordship. I'm glad to see you well. Horatio, I do forget myself. The same, my lord, and your poor servant ever. Sir, my good friend, I'll change that name with you. And what make you from Wittenberg, Horatio? Marcellus. My good lord. I'm very glad to see you. Good evening, sir. But what in faith make you from Wittenberg? Uh, a truant disposition, good my lord. I would not hear your enemy say so. I know you are no truant. But what is your affair in Elsinore? We'll teach you to drink deep ere you depart. My lord, I came to see your father's funeral. I prithee do not mock me, fellow student. I think it was to see my mother's wedding. Indeed, my lord, it followed hard upon. 
Thrift, thrift, Horatio, the funeral baked meats did coldly furnish forth the marriage tables. Would I had met my dearest foe in heaven, or ever I had seen that day, Horatio. My father, methinks I see my father. Where, my lord? In my mind's eye, Horatio. I saw him once. It was a goodly king. He was a man, like him for all in all. I shall not look upon his like again. My lord, I think I saw him yesternight. Saw who? My lord, the king, your father. The king, my father. Season your admiration for a while with an attent ear till I may deliver upon the witness of these gentlemen this marvel to you. For God's love, let me hear. Two nights together had these gentlemen, Marcellus and Bernardo, on their watch in the dead waste and middle of the night been thus encountered. A figure like your father appears before them and with a solemn march goes slow and stately by them. This to me in dreadful secrecy in part they did and I with them the third night kept the watch. Where, as they had delivered, the apparition comes. I knew your father. These hands are not more like. But where was this? My lord, upon the platform where we watch. Did you not speak to it? My lord, I did, but answer made it none. It is very strange. As I do live, my honored lord, tis true. And we did think it writ down in our duty to let you know of it. Indeed, sirs, but this troubles me. Hold you the watch tonight. We do, we my, do lord. my lord. Armed, say you? Armed, Armed, my lord. From top to toe. My lord, my lord, from, from head, head to, foot. to foot. What looked he frowningly? Uh, countenance more in sorrow than in anger. Pale or, or red? Nay, very pale. And fixed his eyes upon you? Most constantly. I would that I had been there. It would have much amazed you. Very like. I will watch tonight. Perchance to walk again? I warrant it will. If it assume my noble father's person, I'll speak to it, though hell itself should gape and bid me hold my peace. I pray you all, if you have hitherto concealed this sight, let it be tenable in your silence still, and whatsoever else shall hap tonight, give it an understanding, but no tongue. I will requite your loves. So fare you well, upon the platform, twixt eleven and twelve, I'll visit you. Our duty, Our duty to, to your, your honor. honor. Your love's as mine to you. Farewell. My father's spirit. In arms. All is not well. I doubt some foul play. Would the night were come, till then sit still my soul. Foul deeds will rise, though all the earth o'erwhelm them to men's eyes. Rock on, guys. Yeah, okay. So let's talk about that ending bit. Uh, there's so many interesting things to say about that duty again, Horatio, using the word duty. It was so interesting to me that he keeps doing that. Oh my God. Okay. So the emotion of my Lord, I, I saw, I think I saw him yesternight is so interesting. There are so many weird emotional exchanges in this little moment. I mean, first of all, Hamlet and Horatio, this is the first, this, this Horatio walking in with Marcellus is the first time you've seen each other in this play. Like Horatio just got here, right? That's what this is telling me. Is that, and I mean, and you don't, Horatio or, or I do forget myself. Like that's an odd line, isn't it? Are you like, do you not remember him? Are you surprised to see him here? 
you know, a combination of both, but it's an odd reunion for people who obviously end up as important to each other as they will in this play. That's an odd beginning. And you're poor servant ever. So I don't know. I don't know what we make of that, but it's an, it's an interesting feeling. And then to continue the slightly disjointed, like emotional tone, Horatio is being really politic with, you know, I came to see, I came for your father's funeral and, and Hamlet makes a, a string of these jokes, you know, of, I think it was to see my mother's wedding and obviously into the big one of thrift, thrift, the funeral baked meats and all of that. It's like, how do you deal with Hamlet in this moment? He's his emotional tone is sort of not what you would expect. Right. Yeah. I think, I think especially given, I I had sort of assumed this and then now, especially given what Isabel had said about it being Christmas, it's the kind of thing where it's like, this is, has been a long couple of months of like no alone time, you know? And like, I think that's why that like, that soliloquy hits so hard is that it's like, oh my God, I'm finally here. I'm finally alone. And then to be yes. followed up with a reminder of like my life as an individual, you know, the life of like a student who has, who has an identity separate from this is freaky. It's like, if you're, you know, you're, you're at home for Christmas having a weird thing and then your, your friend shows up at your door. You're like, what are you mm. like? What? I- I'm con- It's, it's the sort of like, I don't understand, like, why, why would you come to this horrible thing, you know? Uh, yeah. And, and then the, the joy in not having to continue the escapism of it, I think is, is like really exciting. And so it's sort of like, oh, finally, somebody that I can do, do my snide asides to instead of just talking to me. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so, that's so it. And this, I don't know, when we get into... There's something that just feels really emotionally tender to me, Horatio, about the the gentleness of my Lord. I think I saw him yesternight because the longing, you know, I mean, the the Hamlet's all over the place, clearly. And there's so much grief in his language and the gentleness of I actually I think I saw him is such a it's such a weirdly modern piece of writing. You know what I mean? And then we get these details about and I mean, now as we're speaking about ghostiness, you know, the language of assume my father's person or a figure like the king, you know, of like, we still haven't named it. We still don't have concrete language for what it is. Speaking of which, I wanted to just quickly note, pale or red, what an interesting piece of text. Do we have, is there, is there any particular context for that, Isabel, that you want, that, that we have, pale or red? Pale, being the color of cowardice and red being the color of courage and it ties mm. into humor it ties into humorism so pale is phlegmatic and melancholy uh mm-hmm. a red being sanguine and kind of angry and ready to fight so it's better if the ghost is pale because it means that it's probably it's less likely to be satan because he's, he's less angry less likely to be satan is good okay <laughs> very helpful okay so now we have a plan we've moved We've moved all the way into having a plan and my father's spirit in arms, since we had already mentioned this thing of it being in armor, it's just, it really hit my ear that it comes back again at the end here of that Hamlet is like, Hamlet says it, Hamlet is like, and in arms, that's significant, you know, like Hamlet makes sure we know it's significant, which is, which really struck me. Okay. So we know where we're going. We're going to watch for the ghost. 
um, which we still haven't called a ghost unless I've missed it, unless I've mistook it. We still have not had the word. Is that right? Interesting. Yeah. Okay. One, three, let's fucking meet Ophelia. Kick it in, Leartes. My necessaries are embarked. Farewell. And sister, as the winds give benefit and Convey is assistant, do not sleep, but let me hear from you. You doubt that. For Hamlet and the trifling of his favor. Hold it a fashion and a toy in blood, a violet in the youth of priming nature, uh, forward, not permanent, sweet, not lasting, the perfume and suppliance of a minute, no more. No more but so. Think it no more. Perhaps he loves you now, but you must fear his greatness, Wade, his will is not his own. For he himself is subject to his birth. He may not, as unvalued persons do, carve for himself. For on his choice depends the safety and the health of this whole state. And therefore must his choice be circumscribed unto the voice and yielding of that body whereof he is the head. Then, if he says he loves you, it fits your wisdom so far to believe it, as he in his particular act and place may give his saying deed, which is no further than the main voice of Denmark goes withal. Then weigh what loss your honor may sustain, if with too credent ear you list his songs, or lose your heart, or your chaste treasure open to his unmastered importunity. Fear it, Ophelia, fear it, my dear sister, and keep you in the rear of your affection, out of the shot and danger of desire. Be wary, then, as safety lies in fear. Youth to itself rebels, though none else near. I shall the effect of this good lesson keep as watchman to my heart. But good, my brother, do not as some ungracious pastors do, show me the steep and thorny way to heaven, whilst like a puffed and reckless libertine, himself the primrose path of dalliance treads and wrecks not his own reed. Oh, fear me not. Oh, I stay too long, but here my father comes. A double blessing is a double grace. Occasion smiles upon a second leave. I want to take a tiny pause here before we let Polonius rock on. Just to address very quickly, um, the, the effect or maybe the amplification of gender in the play by the fact that we have a woman playing Hamlet and a woman playing Laertes. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I wanted to bring up at, in the middle of Tutu Solid Flesh, really, with, you know, we've already had Hamlet's language, frailty, thy name is woman. And the question of misogyny in this play and where it lives and how violent it gets and what it is born out of is a really interesting thing. And so here we are again coming to the issue of, you know, th- a young woman, the only one in the play, being told best safety lies in fear. And right away, women and how they, well, and I mean, Gertrude, obviously, there are so many issues of sexuality and, and um, sexuality and power that revolve around Gertrude as well. It's just like misogyny is really at the center of this play, among other things. And so I just wanted to flag it as we begin to sort of orbit it. And not that, not that Laertes is, is being misogynist in this moment, but that what feels like common sense to him is being really 
quickly called out by Ophelia in the next line in a joking and a loving way. But the thing of, okay, but, you know, um, make sure that you're doing as you say as well, you know, of like the fact that she turns it back on him is um, interesting to me. Yeah, I love how quickly and clearly you see their relationship because this is their only scene together. So you need to like quick and concisely and to the point and see their closeness and their, her reliance on him, but also their like witty sort of wordplay to each other. I think you really get that in this scene. Also the takeaway just with Isabel talking about the flowers and the mad scene and Rue, how that would have been used, you know, to instigate an abortion. It's just interesting keeping that in mind with this, you know, warning against. I mean, they're both a couple of sluts is my takeaway. And I say that with affection rather than judgment. Both, <laughs> but I think both I think, Ophelia and, and Laertes. Yeah, I think both Ophelia and Laertes yeah, yeah. are like, well, but you. And, and like, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I agree. And yeah. I feel like they both know that. And again, this indeed may be colored by the fact that my pronouns are she, her, and this is the role that I'm playing. And I grant that, but like, it feels significant to me that I don't start this conversation about, hey, female person, you got to watch yourself. I start this conversation by saying, let's talk about Hamlet. Let's talk about your partner and the fact that I am very clear to make it not about her so much as about the fact that I do not trust that person. Yes. Don't or trust indeed, him. trust, okay, maybe not don't trust that person so much as, look, I'm not telling you to break up with your partner right now, but he will always care more about his job, like his birthright. And that's horrible to say. The, the thing that really struck me in the listening to it was that your text really assumes that Hamlet will be king. And now yes. that we have, now that we have opened up this context about the political system, now I'm like, oh, well, maybe this isn't a foregone conclusion, but in Laertes' mind, it's definitely like, no, no, he's the head of the state. He's going to have to choose a, uh, like a, you know, he's going to have to marry in a specific way. Yes. So don't go too far down this road. And so it's interesting because we've only been in the presence. We just left the presence of royalty. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now we're in this other family that is royalty adjacent, but not royalty. And it's interesting how much more aware of the status we are over here. And I also want to point out, it, it does feel, I, in my experience, seeing productions of this play, this scene is the most effective when it's immediately, a, like when we go from cold and there are things that are not being said to warmth and we are we are a family that is genuinely i have a problem with something my sister is doing i'm going to say it to her and we're going to talk mm-hmm. about it so yeah, that is and my it, hope for what it can be certainly 100 well and also like it's i mean we're about to get polonius in but it's a scene about advice giving you know and and advice that is given in love i think yeah. i think it is a good way to draw a line under it let's yeah. let's go let's go on and feel that then but yeah, Hamlet, gonna be king, so let's not mess with it. But I like that, yeah, your point, Zoe, that this shows their relationship so quickly, I think is so it, because it's mind-boggling that this is their only scene. Yep. Con- considering where we go. Uh, Laertes, can we have it from Oh, Fear Me Not, I Stay Too Long? Oh, Fear Me Not. Oh, I stay too long, but here my father comes. A double blessing is a double grace. 
Occasion smiles upon a second leaf. <laughs> Yet here, Laertes, aboard, aboard for shame. The wind sits in the shoulder of your sail and you are stayed for. There, my blessing with thee. And these few precepts in thy memory, look thou character. Give thy thoughts no tongue, nor any unproportioned thought his act. Be thou familiar, but by no means vulgar. Those friends thou hast and their adoption tried, grapple them to thy soul with hoops of steel. But do not dull thy palm with the entertainment of each new hatched, unfledged courage. Beware of entrance to a quarrel, but being in, bear it that the opposed may beware of thee. Give every man thy ear, but few thy voice. Take each man's censure, but reserve thy judgment. Costly thy habit as thy purse can buy, but not expressed in fancy rich, not gaudy, for the apparel oft proclaims the man. Neither a borrower nor lender be, for loan oft loses both itself and friend, and borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry. And this above all to thine own self be true. And it must follow as the night, the day. Thou canst not then be false to any man. Farewell, my blessing season this in thee. Most humbly do I take my leave, my lord. The time invests you. Farewell, Ophelia, and remember well what I've said to you. Is in my memory locked, and you yourself shall keep the key of it. Farewell. Didst it, Ophelia, he hath said to you. So please you something touching the Lord Hamlet. Ah, Mary. Well, he thought, uh, tis told me he hath very oft of late given private time to you. And you yourself have of your audience been most free, bounteous. And if it be so, as tis put to me, and that in way of caution, I must tell you, you do not understand yourself so clearly as it behooves my daughter and your honor. What is between you? Give me up the truth. He hath, my lord, of late made many tenders of his affection to me. Affection? You speak like a green girl, unsifted in such perilous circumstance. Do you believe his tenders, as you call them? I do not know, my lord, what I should think. Ah, Mary, I will teach you. Think yourself a baby, <laughs> that you have tamed these tenders for such true pay, which are not sterling. Tender yourself more dearly, or you'll tender me a fool. My lord, he hath importuned me with love in honorable fashion. Oh, fashion, you may call it. Go to, go to. And hath given countenance to his speech, my lord, with almost all the holy vows of heaven. Aye, springs to catch woodcocks. I do know when the blood burns, how prodigal the soul lends the tongue vows. These blazes, daughter, you must not take them for fire. For this time be something scanter of your maiden presence in few, Ophelia. 
do not believe his vows, for they are mere implorators of unholy suits, breathing like sanctified and pious bods, the better to beguile. This is for all. I would not in plain terms from this forth have you so slander any moment leisure as to give words or talk with the Lord Hamlet. Look to it, I charge you. <laughs> Come your ways. I shall obey, my lord. Okay. You sort of have to just let him flow, you know? <laughs> That's, um, it's so interesting, the symmetry of this scene. Uh, it's of one, two, advice to a son, advice to a daughter. You know, isn't that interesting? And I mean, also like, of our two dads in this play, I mean, three dads, we're about to meet the third, but uh, you know, of our two living dads, what a different dad energy Polonius is. You know what I mean? Because there is a ton of genuine warmth in what you're doing, Colin. And I think that's exactly it. It's so, I love, and I felt like you have a, t you did a tone of this. The advice that he gives Laertes going off to lead, you know, this sort of young hot gentleman's life in the city, you, you know, sure. that there's a thing going on of, I feel like Polonius is sort of remembering his youth a little bit here, you know, in that of like, this is how you like become a man about town and like totally. be free, be free with your money, but not too free with your money. And, you know, like all of this stuff about like, this is how you have a fun life as a young man in Paris or wherever. And then turning to Ophelia here, there's an interesting shift because Laertes in that nice little conspiratorial moment with Ophelia is like, remember one? And Ophelia is like, I got it. I'm locking it. The siblings act like Polonius doesn't know this information. Like they had a private conference and then Polonius is like, so everybody's telling me that you and Hamlet are boning. <laughs> <laughs> like two seconds later, it's really interesting yeah. that Laertes is like, we have a secret. And then Polonius is like, hi, someone told me that you're spending a lot of private time. And the, the thing, the thing that something I had never really thought about before is this thing of somebody told me, like, mm. as I am told is his language. Who told you? Yeah. <laughs> we never know. We never know. But also like, so this is information. This is political. This is court information. Mm. And so one of my questions, I guess, is, is that fact news to Ophelia? You know, that this, that this is being talked about in like, a strategic political, like, you know, and also like the exact time frame of how long Ophelia and Hamlet have been messing around is maybe too murky to discover and also probably intentionally murky. But this thing of, you know, like we've been spending some time, he's been making some tenders, he's been writing some letters, we're gonna, you know, but like, I just wonder whether the fact that government officials are talking about it is news to her. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I feel like this scene is, I mean, Ophelia as a character, obviously like so many of these types of damsels in distress, or I guess they're made into like damsels in distress is my point. But in her language, I read it so much more as like, I don't want to talk about this with you, dad. <laughs> like, yeah. And I know that's yeah. a very modern reading that I'm that I might be putting onto it a little bit, but I feel like it makes so much more sense when you think of it that way, as opposed to her struggling to be like, he has he, 
the language she uses is really interesting, you know, about yes. perfection and, and he's joking that she sounds like a little girl. Um, yeah. but I think what she's actually saying, she's like skirting around it purposely. Yes. Um, yes. I think is a much more interesting choice personally. I agree. Um, I agree. Like, I don't want to talk about this with you right now. So I don't know. I think it can be yeah. pretty funny. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I think that probably, I don't know if it's like new to everybody. I think also the choice, whether or not you have Ophelia in the first scene. Yeah. Determines sort of how you go as far as like her position in court, what people yes. know with Hamlet. I think there's a lot to be decided there. Yes. The yes. Yeah. What does she know? What does she not know? Well, how involved is she? You mm-hmm. know, how, yeah. How involved is she? How present is she? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we can retroactively answer that question as we move deeper into the play, you know, which is interesting because I think because she shows up in other interesting places. But I think you're totally right that this language that she uses of like, okay, he's like been kind of affectionate. I totally agree that it is it is more in the tone of like, dad, like, (laughs) I think the choices that we've made about Polonius acting in good faith and out of love to keep you from something really unfortunate happening to you is the right one, you know, of like, this has to be a firm, but like loving father figure, I think, you know, and in this, I mean, it feels like in the language, the way that it builds to you're saying straight up, I would not in plain terms from this time forth have you so slander any moment leisure as to give words or talk with the Lord Hamlet. Like, it feels like it builds to, I'm going to have to break it down for you really simply. I don't want you to talk to him anymore. There's a funny, and I mean, just to kind of add, like the fact that the mother isn't here and not spoken of and dot, dot, dot. And I think there's a lot of choice on his part, especially it's a, it's, it's a conversation. I don't think many fathers would even engage in at the time or, or bring up. And I think kind of the fact that mom is in the letters, he probably, yeah, or potentially. And and exactly, and or any somebody would be more apt to, you know. But I think I think he's conscious of playing both roles. I think or trying to trying to keep both hats on and engaging in conversations and kind of giving that, you know. And then like by the end, he kind of put not to put yeah. you know gender roles on it, but put dad's hat back on and was like, listen, don't you're not doing this. Is what I'm saying. Is what I'm <laughs> you know. If you want to talk about it, great. Okay. I think I, I think that's. I think that's great. I think that makes perfect sense because I'm so glad that you brought up the fact that there isn't a mom because of this thing of it makes sense the way the scene is framed the way that it is of you have to know how to talk to a son, how to talk to a daughter. It tells us something about Polonius's sort of fluency too. I sort of feel like of like that's yeah. that's within the scope of your ability. You know totally. how to how to sort of code switch, you know? And so I think that's sort of interesting. Can I say one thing? Yeah, I know of course. We're, on, we're in a time crunch, but no. the, the sort of like, I think that this, everything, the scene can be very light, but the serious moment is when Ophelia says uh, he's importuned me with almost all the holy vows of heaven. Um, because in Shakespeare's England, uh, marriage is no longer a sacrament under Protestantism. And so like the issue of secret marriage becomes like, it's like rampant in England. And that's why like Romeo and Juliet, this happens and measure for measure, this happens. And, and one of the things that constituted a marriage was sleeping together. 
So um, if Hamlet and Ophelia have had sex, as I believe that uh, they do, and I will fight anyone who thinks that that isn't the case, then the only thing that she's missing is like a public uh, marriage ceremony because, be- because they're members of the court. Right. That's it. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. So, so, so right. if I can ask a question about that, I'm sorry. I know we're on time crunch. Like if, if even me, like who, who has been away for a while even has already taken, like I already even see that or she's told me, if this relationship is going well, would Laertes have had, would Laertes think if this relationship was going well, there would have already been some sort of public something? Yes. That's the issue. It's right. like Hamlet is the is the boyfriend who just won't propose. And I think that's why the Polonius family is so protective of Ophelia because she's a lady of standing and she can have a good marriage. But right. Hamlet won't marry her, but he will sleep with her. Thus are, thus really are two different types of advice to her. Like clearly right, exactly. he cares more about some other thing. Yeah, so this is why the male members of this family are like, listen, he's a fuckboy, right. essentially. But that's like political and historical context for him being a fuckboy, which is really helpful. Oh, Ophelia. And I, I mean, we're going to move on. But the fact that she ends the scene by saying, by agreeing, at least to her dad, at least out loud. Right. I mean, she doesn't on it. Yeah. She doesn't, but she's like, okay, dad. And that's where we button that. But we have had, I mean, we're pretty deep in and we have had sort of a hell of a lot of information about Hamlet and Ophelia's backstory. And they have not, they have not appeared in a room together yet. Unless you make an extra textual choice by putting her in one too. Just an interesting thing. Okay. Back to ghost o'clock. Let's get Hamlet on that battlement. Let's get Joe up in this. Take it away, Ham. The air bites shrewdly. It is very cold. It is a nipping and an eager air. What hour now? I think it lacks of 12. No, it is struck. Indeed. I heard it not. It then draws near the season wherein the spirit held his wont to walk. What does this mean, my lord? The king doth wake tonight and takes his rouse, and as he drains his drafts of Rhenish down, the kettle drum and trumpet thus bray out the triumph of his pledge. Is it a custom? Aye, Mary is. But to my mind, though I am native here and to the manor born, it is a custom more honored in the breach than the observance. This heavy-headed revel east and west makes us traduced and taxed of other nations. They cleep us drunkards and with swinish phrase soil our addition. And indeed, it, it takes from our achievements, though performed at height, the pith and marrow of our attribute. Look, my lord, it comes. Angels and ministers of grace, defend us. Be thou a spirit of health or goblin damned. Bring with the airs from heaven or blast from hell. Be thy intents wicked or charitable. Thou comest in such a questionable shape that I, sh- I will speak to thee. I'll call thee Hamlet, King... Father, royal Dane, oh, answer me. Let me not burst in ignorance, but tell why thy canonized bones, hersed in death, have burst their ceremonies. Say, why is this? Wherefore? What should we do? Okay, tiny pause before we roll on, just to flag some stuff. Midnight again. (laughs) Um, This is one of those moments where we learn, where we get subtextual little Horatio contradictions. You know, like... This is where we realize that you're not familiar with the customs of the land and Hamlet has to explain them to you. 
And also this is where we get Hamlet's view of Claudius's drinking and partying. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting little moment for context for Horatio, a friend to this ground. Are you from here or not from here? You definitely seemed like you were a Dane in one one. We talked about it, but now you don't know what's happening. That's interesting. And Hamlet's perspective is that all this partying makes us look bad uh, globally. <laughs> in in European, we drink too much for European politics. That was this partying. My, it don't. <laughs> yeah, Hamlet ran on the uh, uh, <laughs> on a platform of, of uh, banning parties. Yeah, banning all parties. Uh, uh, no liquor. <laughs> Uh, teetotaler yeah, yeah, yeah. teetotal he was the teetotaler party <laughs> he was he was sobriety 2021 Temperance well movement. yeah okay uh look my lord it comes and i just wanted to flag isabel since you had mentioned catholicism earlier there's some catholic little energy in hamlet's speech here right that canonized bones her you know hersed and death have burst their ceremonies. like we begin to get energy that feels catholic in terms of the treatment of the of the body and the ghost don't we yeah it's it, it's and, and and that's right it feels catholic it's not it explicitly catholic. catholic like there are some explicitly catholic plays like romeo and juliet being one of them this play is not explicitly catholic it's in a, a country that was protestant at the time they adopted uh protestantism long before england but shakespeare still right. writes like this weird catholic like Hamlet seems to be Catholic and Horatio seems to be Protestant. I mean, the ghost seems to be a weird blend of the two. Right, exactly. That's super helpful to have in our brains for this. Okay, so it beckons you to go away with it, Horatio. Let's roll on. It beckons you to go away with it. But do not go, my lord. No, by no means. It will not speak. Then I will follow it. Do not, my lord. Why? What should be the fear? I do not set my life at a pin's fee, and for my soul, what can it do to that being a thing immortal as itself? It waves me forth again, I'll follow it. What if it tempt you toward the flood, my lord, or, or to the dreadful summit of the cliff and there assume some other horrible form which might deprive your sovereignty of reason and draw you into madness? Think of it. It waves me still, go on, I'll follow thee. Uh, you shall not go, my lord. Hold off your hands. Be ruled, you shall not go. My fate cries out by heaven, I'll make a ghost of him that lets me. I say, away, go on, I'll follow thee. He waxes desperate with imagination. Let's follow. Tis not fit thus to obey him. Have after. To what issue has come? Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Heaven will direct it. Nay, let's follow him. Okay, tiny pause. You guys just put hands on the prince of Denmark mm. in order to keep him from following this ghost. We still haven't used the word ghost to refer to the ghost. We just had, I'll make a ghost of him that lets me. That's so interesting. Now I'm obsessed with the word ghost since this whole play is about a ghost. We still haven't said ghost. I'm sorry, I'm losing my mind. But that's really massive that this, this, there's a bunch of weird shit going on here that the status has been breached to the degree that Marcellus, who this whole time has been like very freaked out by this, is like, we cannot let him. And Marcellus, this guard, throws hands on the prince. That's massive. I don't know. There's something very interesting in that, that he's being physically restrained and the text is so clear about that and that he has to break away. And this language too, Horatio, is also really interesting. This ambiguity about whether or not you believe in the ghost, you all can see it. And yet your language is still this thing of 
it might assume some other horrible form and deprive you of your reason. Like we still don't have an understanding solidly of what the thing is itself. Like it could be anything. It could be devilish. But okay, so Hamlet runs after it. Horatio and Marcellus will follow him. Okay, let's roll on. Whither wilt thou lead me? Speak, I'll go no further. Mark me. I will. My hour is almost come when I to sulfurous and tormenting flames must render up myself. Alas, poor ghost. Pity me not, but lend thy serious hearing to what I shall unfold. Speak, I am bound to hear. So art thou to revenge when thou shalt hear. What? I am thy father's spirit, doomed for a certain term to walk the night and for the day confined to fast in fires, till the foul crimes done in my days of nature are burnt and purged away. List, list, O oh list, if thou didst ever thy dear father love. Oh God. Revenge his foul and most unnatural murder. Murder. Murder most foul. As in the best it is, but this most foul, strange and unnatural. Haste me to note that I, with wings as swift as meditation or the thoughts of love, may sweep to my revenge. I find thee apt. Now, Hamlet, hear. Tis given out that, sleeping in my orchard, a serpent stung me. So the whole ear of Denmark is by a forged process of my death rankly abused. But no, thou noble youth, the serpent that did sting thy father's life now wears his crown. Oh, my prophetic soul, my uncle. Aye, that incestuous, that adulterate beast with witchcraft of his wits, with traitorous gifts, oh, wicked wit and gifts that have the power so to seduce one to his shameful lust, the will of my most seeming virtuous queen. Oh, Hamlet, what a falling off was there from me, whose love was of that dignity that it went hand in hand, even with the vow I made to her in marriage to decline upon a wretch whose natural gifts were poor to those of mine. But soft, methinks I sent the morning air. Brief, let me be. Sleeping within my orchard, my custom always of the afternoon, upon my secure hour thy uncle stole with juice of cursed hebanon in a vial and in the porches of my ears did pour the leprous distillment, whose effect holds such an enmity with blood of man that swift as quicksilver, it courses through the natural gates and alleys of the body. Thus was I, sleeping, by a brother's hand of life, of crown, of queen, at once dispatched, cut off even in the blossoms of my sin. Oh, horrible! Oh, horrible, most horrible, if thou hast nature in thee, bear it not. Let not the royal bed of Denmark be a couch for luxury and damned incest. But howsomever thou pursues this act, taint not thy mind, nor let thy soul contrive against thy mother aught. Leave her to heaven, and to those thorns that in her bosom large to prick and sting her. Fare thee well at once. Adieu, 
Adieu. Adieu. Remember me. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Sorry, Ham. Before we, um, before, yeah, let's just deal with him. Oof. So we've been haunted by this thing and it hasn't spoken. And that is so powerful, you know, and then it speaks. And you know how we've been, it just struck me that we've been talking so much about the possibilities that the people on stage feel of what is this thing? Like it hasn't, we haven't reached a definition for what the thing is until the thing itself speaks. And Joe, that struck me so strongly the way that you emphasized, I am thy father's spirit doomed for a certain term to walk the night. It's like, you know that we've been wondering. And now that you can speak with this urgency that Isabel sort of contextualized for us of like, you've been waiting in the ether to speak. Now you now is the time when you can speak. The person to whom you can speak is present. I am thy father's spirit. And that, it, it's like the whole audience feels that because we've just like been circling that question, haven't we? It's really interesting. Oh my God. There's so many things about this. It's helpful that the ghost gives us the official story. Okay. So this is what the actual story is about what happened to me. And then, you know, because we don't know any of this, we don't know. Okay. He was stung in his orchard by a serpent. That's all news. Do you know what I mean? And so it's news to us, not to Hamlet, obviously, but it's helpful for us to hear what the official story is before you can take us into the metaphor of the serpent that did sting thy father's life. Now where's his crown? Something else that really struck me about that speech is the ver the questions of a, what kind of purgatory is this ghost in? As Isabel just said, this is sort of a Catholic ghost and sort of a Protestant ghost. And with that come the questions of like, well, what can you do and what can you not do? How much agency do you have? You have to disappear when it's morning. Like you have to disappear when the cock crows. And yet the verbs that the ghost uses are really interesting to me. I, me thinks I can scent the morning air. Can you smell stuff? And there was like, there was a verb earlier. There's a verb earlier that one of the, I think maybe Horatio or Marcellus uses of you usurp the time. I don't know, like the ghost gets all these active verbs attached to him and then has to disappear at certain moments. So like, do you have agency or do you not? Like there are so many ghost questions about how you occupy the space. You know what yeah, I mean? It's really interesting. It's like, cause he talks about like, you know, the fire, like I'm doomed to like spend the day in fire and like, it's yeah. like, okay, he's like literally feeling all this stuff and then he's sensing. Yeah. It, it, that is so interesting. I think. It is of just like, what are you, uh, what can you feel and see and touch and what do you have control over and whatnot, you know, and we will roll on in just one second, but something as I was preparing for this act and was reading this book that I'm reading of the Hamlet, a user's guide. Um, he makes a really interesting point that I have had in my head that I wanted to put down in terms of stage practice of like, what kind of ghost is the scariest kind of ghost? You know what I mean? And this is like the boiling down of a big like sort of chapter on this, but like basically the point is that the less spooky and otherworldly and the more concrete and the more I am thy father's spirit he is, probably the better. And I just wanted to read this sentence that I underlined, which is talking about different experiments uh, of how to make the ghost sort of more otherworldly or more technological or whatever. And then this particular line is, um, in fact, an actor committed to being old Hamlet in every human detail is probably both what Shakespeare wanted and the most potent means of haunting a sophisticated audience. Mm. 
And I found that really interesting and truthful to, I think, how I would inhabit it on stage. And so I just wanted to put that on the table that like, when we say as like to thy father as thou art to thyself earlier, we mean it. So part of what's crazy is standing in front of your father who's dead. So anyway, that's obvious, but maybe worth saying. I also wanted to say Hamlet says ghost for the first time. Well, refers to him as a ghost after he hears him speak. Right. Hmm. I think that's like pretty awful, <laughs> you know. It's right. like and that's you could confirmation, you could, right? Yeah, and like also like what we've said, like you could you could seem like anything. We've talked a lot about seeming. Like I I have the you know the trappings and the suits of woe. Like we've talked about what things seem, but to to sound like him is different. Yes, and to sound like him and to and to to be him to know what he knows. Yeah. Yeah. So and, now and he's a he ghost. Says it, yeah. He says it because he says, I, I render myself up to torment. Like I, I'm, I'm in hell, <laughs> like, you know, for lack of a better description, you know, that, that is, and like, you know, that comes up later with like, he killed my father grossly full of bread. Like, you know, yeah, it's this, this is a weird thing to say, but it humanizes him hearing that he is in torment. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely real. And it makes your grief different. It, it legitimizes your grief. Something that's interesting to hearing, hearing the ghost's speech about what exactly happened to him. His use of the word lust, it's the ghost who talks about Gertrude's lust first, not Hamlet. It's the ghost. And this, this locating of like the shameful lust of my most seeming virtuous queen and for you to invoke that word seeming again. What's weird and kind of eerie to me, and I'm not suggesting that the ghost isn't real, but what's weird about hearing this speech is how intensely point by point it validates what Hamlet showed us in one two of like every single thing that Hamlet is pissed about. The ghost is like, you were right, you were right, you were right. And so this thing of like, he pours gasoline on a fire that was already going, but like, it's, it's everything that you want him to say. Weirdly. Right. And Even then like it, gives him, gives him permission. It's like, don't feel guilty about fucking killing this guy. Cause he killed me. Yeah. And it's like, that's literally what, and, and Hamlet's like, Oh fuck. Yeah. Hell great. Let's do it then. Um, Emma building on that. I have like a directorial question for you. Yeah. Would you put the ghost in the scenes before this one? I wouldn't. But I wouldn't because I think what I just discovered is spooky about it in my own imagination is the fact that the ghost speaks so directly out of Hamlet's and to Hamlet's subconscious, even without being there. You know, like that's really interesting is that Shakespeare creates a link. Shakespeare creates a link because they're related because this is, it's bigger. I don't know. It's like I said, I'm not trying to um, in any way posit that the ghost is not happening and in fact Hamlet sort of like madly hallucinating you know what he needs to hear in order to validate his feelings but there is a relationship between everything the ghost says and Hamlet's feelings as they're already established and that's an that is spooky it's spooky that's really all I'm putting my finger on well and I mean obviously I guess what we're going to go on to discover is like well if this validates everything that you already felt and he gives you a really simple directive. Why do we then spend a thousand hours not just doing the thing? (laughs) Which I suppose, which I suppose is sort of the point of the play. I mean, as we go on, but it's like, we're setting it up like gangbusters here. You know, I mean, we're setting it up like 
like a bat out of hell screenwriter could dream of doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? So far, so revenge tragedy. <laughs> okay. There's also so much gorgeous little, so much gorgeous language here, ghosty ghost. You do a lot of threes too. There are a lot of threes in this play and you do a lot of threes, you know, I do, I do, I do. Mm -hmm. Oh, horrible. Oh, horrible. Most horrible. We hit a lot of threes and it's just interesting to continue to feel the rhythm in our bodies, even if it's going to recur forever. Being cut off in the blossoms of your sin is a gnarly idea. And obviously it's something that's going to recur in the play. This idea of being killed before your time, being killed before you're ready. Isabel said in the introduction, I think, that everybody in this play who dies meets an untimely death. And I think part of what's happening here is we're being reminded of that in a really visceral way. Like nobody makes a good death in this play. And there are good deaths in Shakespeare and this play is filled with like 50 bad ones. And now we get to do the thing that we never get to do, which is hear from a dead person how bad it was. You know what I mean? Like that almost never happens. So it was pretty fucking bad. Oh, horrible, horrible, most horrible. Okay, just because we need, I want to hear the directive again. Joe, can we have it from Let Not the Royal Bed of Denmark? Yeah. And then roll on. Thank you. Uh, if thou hast nature in thee, bear it not. Let not the royal bed of Denmark be a couch for luxury and damned incest. But howsoever thou pursues this act, taint not thy mind, nor let thy soul contrive against thy mother aught. Leave her to heaven and to those thorns that in her bosom lodge to prick and sting her. Fare thee well at once. Adieu. 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 Remember me. Oh, oh, you host of heaven. Oh, earth. What else? And shall I couple hell? Oh, fie! Hold, hold my heart and you, my sinews, grow not an instant old, but bear me stiffly up. Remember thee? I, thou poor ghost, while memory holds a seat in this distracted globe. Remember thee. Yea, from the table of my memory, I'll wipe away all trivial fond records, all saws of books, all forms, all pressures past that youth and observation copied there. And thy commandment all alone shall live within the book and volume of my brain, unmixed with baser matter. Yes, by heaven, oh, most pernicious woman, Oh, villain, villain, smiling, damned villain. My tables, meet it as I set it down, that one may smile and smile and be a villain. At least I am sure it may be so in Denmark. So, uncle, there you are. Now to my word, it is adieu, adieu, remember me. I have sworn it. My lord. My lord? Lord Hamlet. Heavens, secure him. So be it. How is it, my noble lord? What news, my lord? Oh, wonderful. Good, my lord, tell it. No, you will reveal it. Not I, my lord, by heaven. Nor I, my lord. How say you then? But you'll be secret. I, by heaven, by heaven my lord. lord. There's never a villain dwelling in all Denmark, but he's an errant knave. There needs no ghost, my lord, come to the grave to tell us this. Why, you're right. You are in the right. 
And so, without more circumstance at all, I hold it fit that we shake hands and part. You, as your business and desire shall point you, for every man hath business and desire, such as it is, and for my own poor part, <laughs> I will go pray. These are but wild and whirling words, my lord. I am sorry to offend you heartily. Yes, faith heartily. There's no offense, my lord. Yes, by St. Patrick, but there is Horatio and much offense too. Touching this vision here, it's an honest that, let me tell you, for your desire to know what is between us or master, as you may. And now, good friends, as you are friends, scholars, and soldiers, give me one poor request. What is, my lord, we will? Never make known what you have seen tonight. My lord, my lord we, will, we not. will not. Nay, but swear it. In faith, my lord, not I. Nor I, my lord, in faith. Upon my sword. We have sworn, my lord, already. Indeed, upon my sword, indeed. Swear. Ha, 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 boy, sayest thou so? Come on, you hear this fellow, consent to swear. Propose the oath, my lord. Never to speak of this that you have seen. Swear by my sword. Swear. Oh, day and night, but this is wondrous strange. And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than I dreamt of in your philosophy. But come, here, as before, never so help you mercy. How strange or odd some air I bear myself, as I perchance hereafter shall think me to put an antic disposition on, that you at times, at such times seeing me never shall, with arms encumbered thus, or this head shake, or by pronouncing of some doubtful phrase as, well, well, we know, or we could and if we would, or such ambiguous giving out to note that you know aught of me. This do swear. Swear. We swear. We swear. Rest, rest perturbed spirit. So gentlemen, with all my love, I do commend me to you. And what so poor a man as Hamlet is may do, to, may do to express his love and friending to you, God willing, shall not lack. Let us go in together and still your fingers on your lips. I pray the time is out of joint. Oh, cursed spite that ever I was born to set it right. Nay, come, let's go together. Okay, rock on. There is so much going on there that I want to talk about and I will get through it briefly. Fuck, the real big discovery of this for me, following the text through and listening to it has been how intensely the ghost and Hamlet's subterranean needs are twinned. You know what I mean? If every time you need him, you know, like the guards wouldn't, like Marcellus and Horatio wouldn't swear without the ghost saying swear. Like the way that he speaks for you and with you is so interesting that it led me to have a feeling I've never had before when encountering this play, which is by the time you say rest, perturbed spirit, rest, I feel like you're talking about yourself. Yeah. You know, it's like, there is <laughs> such, there is such an intense sort of like emotional twinning between the ghost and Hamlet. And obviously that continues to be relevant, but it starts us in an incredibly potent way. And I mean, it makes me think back to our thing at the beginning of Horatio being like, well, there's gotta be a purpose to this. And so it'll speak to Hamlet. And I mean, fuck, were you right? It'll speak to Hamlet. It'll speak sort of through Hamlet. It'll speak for Hamlet. It'll, you know, I mean, there, it's a really, really strange connection. And that was gnarly for me. I just wanted to uplift a couple of things that I thought were really interesting. After the ghost disappears, Hamlet, when, when you start that speech by saying, what else? 
of like, that really hit me in the gut of what a modern moment that is of like, fucking what now? What else is left? I mean, is it everything? Everything that I thought, apparently, but like, what more could happen? It's just a really interesting moment. And I felt like you hit it in a way that I really heard. And okay, my tables, meet it as I set it down. A man may smile and smile and be a villain. Isabel, does he write it down? Is that, is that what we need to do there? Does the stagecraft demand that we write it down? Uh, yes, I mean, that's what he's calling for, his tables to write it down. But I think, I doubt even as Shakespeare, yeah. yeah, it's rhetorical. I don't think Shakespeare would have had him get a little writing table and start scribbling no. it down. That feels really <laughs> unlikely. Oh, it reminds me of the 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 Nicholas Heitner production at the National years ago. Um, the the famous one where the, with Rory Kinnear, where he um, he had chalk in his pocket and he instead of writing it, he did smile and smile and be a villain. He did a huge chalk smiley face on the wall of the theater. I have that T-shirt, um, but <laughs> it was. So, I, I love the way that figured into the rest of the production. But I yeah, it was good. It was good. Um, there were a lot of things I didn't love about that show, and I loved that. It's, a, it's an interesting moment. Um, what the hell does this say? She said, not being able to read her own notes. Um, an honest ghost, Hamlet says, an honest ghost. Well, yeah, since it confirmed everything that you already believed. <laughs> you would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> and the, let's see, did I already say that? Yes, yes, yes. Breast protrepid spirit. Yes, yes, yes. Just a tiny little Horatio Grace note here this is strange and therefore as a stranger give it welcome there are a couple of interesting ways to read that line i mean one of them is definitely like as a stranger give it welcome is the ghost a stranger or is horatio a stranger or both it's an interesting uh link that hamlet makes textually there why is there a reason just really quickly before we before we leave it behind is there a reason, Isabel, that like in a cultural sense or in like a textual sense that they wouldn't that they wouldn't want to swear because the, the making everybody swear and then swear on the sword and make it really solemn is something that Horatio and Marcellus don't want to do. Yeah. No, go ahead else. Sorry. Just because I feel like, um, I feel like it might've been in the delivery of the line, but the first in faith, my Lord, not I, and nor I, my Lord in faith, I think are the swears. Mm -hmm. And then Hamlet asks for a re recapitulation, a doubling down on it. Right on the sword yeah but but i don't think at any point do they not do they decline to swear the well i guess then the moment of resistance is what i wanted to examine of like is there is there a um you know yeah. um let me direct you to my master's thesis which is about oaths and oath making <laughs> and shakespeare um don't, don't worry i won't bore anyone um so the oath is and 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 so and so swearing is like the most important it uh, where do I start this? Uh, most people can't write. So, so the verbal oath is like the way to get things done. And they're like legally binding and they're super fucking important. And so everybody else in the scene besides Hamlet is still a little bit like, I think this ghost is probably the devil. So swearing to the devil feels icky to them. And that's where the resistance comes from. Can I say also like Isabel, feel free to correct me on this. This is just like a, like me thinking thing. Also the idea of like, this, this is a ghost that is in armor and it's like swear on my sword. Like it feels like a commitment to a battle to come to, to totally. me at least. Totally. Like yeah. saying yeah. is like, is like, like swear to me that you'll fight with me when with this ghost, when it is necessary. Like, that's what it feels like. The ask yeah. is, is like, 
this this is Hamlet, the king of Denmark. This is Hamlet, the prince of Denmark. He is here in armor and I am here with my sword asking you to swear to me that you won't tell anyone what we've done here. Like, it feels like a commitment to battle. And the thing is, Horatio and Marcellus, poor Marcellus, were already scared as hell at the beginning of this play. And like, this is fucking high key shit right now. <laughs> like, you ended up in a place you had no idea you were going, Marcellus. What a week. Yeah, that is super, that is super helpful. I wanted to just highlight the moment of like the ask, the need for the doubling down, the demand for loyalty. And then also before we rewind it back to the top, I just wanted to, to uplift for Hamlet because it is so intense and I didn't want to blow past it without noticing, you know, the I'll wipe from the table of my memory, I'll wipe away all trivial fond records, that whole speech, all saws of books, all forms, all pressures past the, the, you're alone on stage for that moment. The ghost disappears and your dudes aren't in yet. And here you are actually alone again for the first time in a minute. And what you use that time to do is in the heat of the moment after having everything that was deepest in your soul confirmed by the ghost is wipe away everything that is you that isn't that. It is such an intense moment of, it's it's so sort of, um, Lady Macbeth, like in an unsex me here kind of way. It's it's a it's a self immolation on stage moment of everything that I was, is burned away from now yeah. except for this. Yeah, I, I think, and that never goes well. <laughs> I mean, yeah, first that, but also I think for me too is the fact that like going into this, when when they're like trying to keep, physically keep Hamlet from running after this ghost, he says like, my fate is calling me. My fate is yeah. calling me. And 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 also it reminds me of like, and I said this for for Ayana's like thing that is one of my favorite lines from this play is uh when Hamlet says, uh it is such a kind of gain giving as would perhaps trouble a woman, like right before the fight with Laertes when he like knows he's about to die, is this feeling of like that that thing that we that sometimes happens when you like you feel that something's coming, but you tell yourself yeah. that that's just a feeling. The the fact that this scene, he comes into the scene being like, this, this is it. This is what I'm, what I've been put here to do. And then he says that yes. like at the end, like, oh, cursed spite that ever I was born to set it right. Like, yes. this is like, I am an unworthy vessel of this fate of like being yes, yes. Uh, uh, of this is so big to me, but also Huge. just like femininity of I, mm. I am, I, I knew this was coming, but I, but I don't believe it. And I still like the, the battle between like, yeah, the battle between logically, this can't be true, but also spiritually, my instinct, my gut tells me that this is going to happen is like, yes. is to me the battle of, of the character and like Absolutely. What, it, what, Absolutely. what draws me to it so much. And you feel it so much in this scene. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it, it led me to this realization that I wasn't expecting, which is exciting of the way in which the ghost speaks directly out of that gut place of yours, the way in which the ghost is like, I am here to speak for that. You know what I mean? Like, it's a really, really interesting relationship. And I'm glad before we roll on that you drew our attention to that ever I was born to set it right, because that is something I wanted to touch. It's one of my favorite lines. It's one of the things that tells us the most about Hamlet. I think that like, you know, we already had that line earlier in one two where he says this motherfucker meaning claudius as uh as unlike my as as you know as unlike my father as i am to hercules like you've already put yourself on the opposite end of a spectrum from the quintessential hero and here you are being like i'm just some fucking nerdy boob and i'm here to 
you know, and now this is my calling. And that's the play. And we're in and we're at the end of act one and we know what the play is now. The interesting thing is how pat this is set up, how strong, how muscular, how obvious everything that I thought was true. Oh, of course, I'm right. This is harrowing, but I'm right. And now I've been told by the gut part of myself personified what I have to do. And so why are we going to now spend four more acts not doing it? Fantastic question. But for now, we've been set up in this really, really muscular way. It just, it just strikes me that like act one is like a fucking action movie. It's insane how fast it moves. It's a political like thriller. It's incredible. And what we will do is read the act and barrel through the sucker fluidly without interruption and with the benefit of what we now know. All I want to say about that before we do it is because um, internet explosions notwithstanding, because we will be able to barrel through uninterrupted, I think take on board all of the good verse logic that you guys know how to do, which is do try to, to keep the breath fluid through the verse lines. Do try to keep it clipping because it's muscular. It wants to clip. This is gnarly. Take big swings in terms of those questions that we asked, like, the enjoyment, the resentment, the fear, the whatever, you know, I think if anybody has any super burning questions right now that they need to ask that are like, I'm actually not sure how I feel in this moment, by all means, shout them out. But I think basically take it out of, take it out of clip and the pauses will take care of themselves because I think most of them are written. So let's just go on the journey and sort of see what this apparition is and then find out like we don't know. <laughs>